Yo, what up, guys and gals? Man, huge shout out tonight to uh, my good friends Cody Edgeworth and Brian Menard. If you listen to these ads, if you listen to the last episode, you probably heard me out there sounding a little bit like a, uh, a bum begging for some help. Uh, Nikla and I are trying to do what we're calling, uh, just for now, the Deland Roadshow. Greg Labrador at Deland Roadshow. We're going to be in February, it looks like. We're really working on some dates here. We're going to be in February in the land talking to a couple of the big wigs out there, some of the big names, setting up some interviews. Cody Edgeworth and Brian Menard have both agreed to help us out, man. Uh, we got some airline tickets covered. We got a little bit of what we need to stay. Guys and gals, if you're interested in helping this cause, supporting us, Brian Menard and Cody Edgeworth, I can't thank you guys enough. The next day, y'all hit me up, man. It fucking blows my mind to know that, A, people actually listen to this, but B, uh, don't even just skip the ads. They, they, they listen to everything we have to say, and, and it's just humbling, man. It's, it's awesome. I really, really appreciate you guys taking time out of your life and, and engaging your brain with these voices. So thank you so much just for being there. But thank you especially for helping to make this Deland Roadshow a real a reality, a truth, something that we've talked about and something now that Nick and myself are working on the logistics to. I already have at least one place secure for our facility. I am waiting to talk to one other manufacturer, just seeing what I can work out. Both very amical, very nice people. I've already got one big guy on the uh, show uh, saying, yes, somebody's going to come out. Got another one that has said yes previously. So we've got a few other people we're talking to. I will get you guys and gals more details as soon as we can. So tonight's Gravity Lab Radio is brought to you by Cody Edgeworth and by Brian Menard. Please let me add your name to that list. We have one more other exciting thing about Gravity Lab Radio coming up. Nick Lott doesn't know this yet, man. He hasn't heard this from me yet. I'll probably tell him tonight in this show. Uh, but I just talked to a good friend of mine, Aaron Dita Sanchez, and then Pedro Ramos. Both of them are actually examiners who work for the Rating Center. Aaron is a uh, Mexican skydiver. She has been skydiving in Mexico for quite a long time. Pedro is from Venezuela. I have for years wanted to get uh, one and or both of them on the show. Honestly, their English is a little bit limited, and they're intimidated by that. So I have one better idea, man. We're really trying to cater to that Latin market here in Houston. We have so many Spanish skydivers. We really want to grow the culture and share what we have with our other friends. So we're going to have a Gravity Lab radio coming up in the next month or two, fully in Spanish. Aaron and Paige are going to run the show. Nick and her I will be behind the desk just editing or, or doing whatever it is they do behind this desk. But we got Spanish Gravity Lab Radio coming up to you guys. Tonight's guest is the only grown man I know who can pull off fucking underoo underwear, man. Larry Hack, if you uh, skydive at Spaceland Houston, if you jump there, you've probably seen this like 59, 72-year-old man. And I think Larry's in his mid-40s. Uh, man running around with, dude, Under Armour tight stuff looks like Iron Man. He has the dopest looking Iron Man rig. His helmet, for sure, is the freshest helmet on the market. Larry first showed up to skydiving, really wanted to do a lot, ambitious in his goals and his dreams, but uh, took a really smart road getting there, man. He did it wise. He did it smart. He continues to chase his dreams. He hasn't accomplished them all, but I really look forward to him sharing his story and what he's done to actually make these things come to I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really <laughs> exciting all of a sudden. I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. 
You are listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and Nicholas Lott. Produced by Justin Grubbs. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? Gentlemen. Mr. Larry Hawk. How hurt? Did you just uh, uh, start over? Two, two seconds in and you mispronounced our poor guest's name? I done. Fuck that shit up, man. I hacked his last name. Get it? I uh, have his. Uh, Mr. Larry Hack, how are you doing this evening, sir? I'm doing good, thanks. I'm going to go back to this glass of wine. Nick, take over. Hey, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, A little sooner than you usually pass it off, but I'll take it. So, uh, Larry, we know you through skydiving. That's not a big surprise. Most of our guests come to us that way. Uh, when did you start jumping? 2000, end of 2012. So you showed up with some pretty lofty goals in, in my memory. That you showed up kind of talking about base jumping off of cliffs. Is that right? I did. I showed up uh, for my first uh, tandem jump and said my goal was to go to Switzerland and wingsuit base jump there. So where did you get that goal? Where did you start thinking about base jumping? Like, What did you see? What put it in your brain? Yeah, I was watching um, YouTube videos, you know, typical answer. And I saw Alexander Poli, um, uh, Roberta Mancino, Yoke Summer, and I just said, I'm, I'm going to go to Switzerland and I'm going to do that. So did you understand how big of a goal that was when you when you decided that that was a thing? Like, did you realize all the steps between I want to do that and doing that? I, I figured there was a lot involved. There's always more than what you think will be there. And see, you think that because you're smart. I, I, mean, I had been through other sports like cave diving, and I that was a long journey, a really okay. long path. So you had and so it's kind of relating it to that. Like, okay, do I really want to get into another? kind of extreme sport mm-hmm. and uh i was older so i was 48 when i did my first skydive and uh i was like i don't have much time like i did with cave dive it took me like a decade to become any good at it and so i, I kind of wanted this fast path i had a lot of people who, who kind of slowed me down which was a good thing because i was a little over a little over uh, ambitious initially because like i felt i'm getting old and i, I gotta make this happen really fast but I got, I got to give you a lot of respect. You look at me as you make that comment because I was one of the people who questioned you. And I've learned over my years to question somebody and then see how they respond. And I questioned you right away. And you responded kindly. You responded in words that I appreciated. I, I can't tell you the exact words, but the gist of it was like, man, I realize I got a lot to learn. I realize I don't know what I don't know. And I'm willing to figure it out, whatever it takes. But the whatever it takes tone wasn't like whatever it takes defiant. It was whatever it takes teach me. So as much as you were looking for the fast track, you were looking for the smart fast track. You were looking for the I'll work fucking hard to make it. And, and my, I remember our first conversation. Actually, I think my first vision of you ever was social media. I think I saw you posting on Facebook. And when I met you, I'm like, hmm, let's see what this fella's got to say and the first time you spoke, I'm, I was interested in hearing you speak some more. So kudos to you for, for really being smart. And it's one of the reasons I wanted you on here is so many people come to the sport with, with really lofty and ideally stupid goals. Let's be real. Swooping a canopy close to the ground, people die. Idiots. Flying a wingsuit <laughs> near a cliff. Man, you have friends who've died this way, right? I have. So we have some really, really stupid goals that if wisely approached don't have nearly the danger. So kudos to you for, for doing it wisely. And I want to share with our other friends who want to do these crazy fucking things. What's a good path? What's a good mindset? So good, good, good on you for doing it. Yeah, I mean, I, my approach in life in general, something that I learned when I was, was pretty young is to find a mentor. And uh, I really wanted to be a computer programmer. And I wanted to work in that field. And I, I, 
wound up working for an amazing boss that I worked for many, many years after that. And I just decided this guy's got a lot that I could learn from. And I, I marched into his office and said, I'd like to claim you as my mentor. Can you like teach me everything about technology and this field and so forth? And like, uh, geez, 35 years later, we're still friends. We still stay in touch. We still do work together once in a while. So just try to take that mentality and always find smarter people that were good. And I found that they, they typically really embrace that when you ask them, they're, they're um, they usually been happy that I've I've asked them to be my mentor. I think it's a compliment if you tell someone, "Hey, you're really really good at what you do. Can you help me learn that so I can, you know, try to get towards your level?" And then just learn from other people. Well, you must be a pretty good mentee considering your level of success. What what do you think makes you uh, so teachable? Uh, I'm not sure. Like I I. I've, I feel like I don't have many answers. I, I never felt really super talented at, at anything and that I've had to work really hard for it and that I'm really better off by listening to someone who's spent a lot of time there and gotten really good at it and, and just learned from them. So maybe maybe it's just the openness to learning and not feeling like I've, I can figure it out myself. So you, you probably had some pretty big uh, expectations if you set your goal on this wingsuit base jumping, right? Yeah. So what was that? Uh, what was that first jump like, kind of compared to the expectations you had built up? It it was it was everything that I thought it would be, and it was amazing to me how I felt, like how I had imagined that it would feel. That it really felt that way. You mean like the actual the sensation actual, of being in the sensation? Ball. Yeah, it's you kind of push off from the mountain and you kind of start to go almost head down and then you start building up speed and that wind increases and then you start that forward movement and you got kind of this long, slow arch where you come out of it. Just watching the videos, I kind of felt that sensation in my body when I actually jumped. I was like, holy shit, like that's exactly <laughs> how I imagined like it. And so did you Did you have anyone that kind of joined you on the adventure of, of learning to skydive and getting you to this point? Well, I told my son, I said, I've been, I've been watching these videos and I'm going to this is what I'm going to do. And uh, he said, well, I, I want to skydive. And I said, yeah, I don't know if you can because, you know, I don't think your mom's going to be real excited about it. He said, I'm a grown-ass man. <laughs> how, I said, how, how old is he at this point? He was like 17. Oh, perfect. And I was like, you're, you're, <laughs> do what I want. you're a, you're a broke-ass student. Do you have any money to do it? He's like, uh, no. Well, he said, I well, you, then it's Dad. pretty Come much on. mom's and my decision. So I told my wife, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. She's like, oh, yeah, okay, great. Have fun, hon. I was like, and Josh was planning on doing it with me. Oh, no, absolutely not. So like, you don't care about me, but you care. <laughs> You're worried about Joshua doing it. She's got insurance policy on you. Oh, yeah. Go cave diving, go skydiving. Do them on the same day. Yeah. She'll, she'll, be, she'll be good. Did Josh come out the day you did your first tandem? He did. We, we, went, we jumped together. We were on the same load. Nice. Yeah, it was in, uh, in San Marcos. Okay. Anyone that we know that took you guys? Yeah, it was, um, uh, um, oh shoot, who was it? It was Kara Latimer, I believe, and one of the other ladies that worked with Kara there that Joshua jumped with. Awesome. What, what you said 2013? Is that what I heard? 2012, I 2012. think, like October, and then I, I didn't get my first uh, jump due to weather and stuff until like January, so right at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And uh, how much of your student program did you do at Spaceland? None of it. None I of actually it? got my A license at uh, San Marcos. Okay, cool. Yeah. So when did you show up at Spaceland? It's probably about a year later. 
Joshua, uh, you know, was going to school up there. He was in, started college, and so we jumped there. And then uh, I started going to Spaceland. I was a little intimidated by going to Spaceland because San Marcos was a small little drop zone. It seemed really casual, and it seemed like all the studs, all the all the sky gods were at at uh, in Houston. So that was, was a little bit scary to go there for the first time as an A licensed student. And, land on the right place and the, f- the field was huge though it was like so much larger than than san marcos that was kind of nice yeah, if you miss our drop zone you really need to open your eyes bro <laughs> i just open up and look around i landed off on my first jump there yeah, that's because you're stupid totally <laughs> <laughs> so did you uh like how did your understanding of skydiving change as you as you started to to learn well i, I didn't even know that free flying existed when i thought of of skydiving, I just thought of people, you know, belly jumping, and then I had seen the wingsuits. And when I got into it and saw that there was all these other aspects of it, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. And then I, I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to be uh, doing any um, wingsuit jumps until 200. So I had like, what am I going to do for the next 150 jumps or so? So I started sit flying. You actually did some coach jumps with me. I remember that real vaguely. Yeah. We didn't do very many, right? I know. I'll have to post the video again. Like, I was really bad, and <laughs> you were right there. I'm still really bad. You you told me something that really stuck in my mind, though, very early on, uh, because I was struggling to kind of be with the group, and, um, you know, I kind of wanted the skydive to come to me, and you said, you know, the skydive's not going to come to you. You got to go to it. And and it just kind of made a, a point with me. So well, that's the great thing about a two way is the skydive will come to you. <laughs> yeah. But you any, did anything bigger than that, <laughs> man. You you gotta you gotta start working. I dug deep, and I think I found your first tandem photo. Oh. Look look <laughs> over your right shoulder there. Is that uh, is that you guys first jump? Oh yeah, that is. Yeah. You're right. Uh, October 21st is when it was posted. Man, it's a tandem of 2012. And who mm-hmm. do you say you thought took you on your first tandems? You know, it, it might have been Hank that I jumped with on the first jump. I don't remember. Like he but, was there but at that Joshua time. was definitely with um, one of the managers of the drop zone. Was um, it at the time Eric Butts? Vic yeah, Cruz? he was there. Okay. Eric, uh, Vic Cruz at some point became the manager. His wife. It was his wife. Connie. It was Connie, right? Yeah. yeah. Trying to get to. She told Josh, she, she leaned over to me and she said, uh, hey, Larry, are you okay? I'm going to ride Joshua really hard all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> you had Connie. <laughs> she had, had Connie. Man, oh, those tacky tandem instructor comments. I feel like that stuff's on its way out. Do you? F- maybe it's just a space land and that stuff's on its way out. Man, I, I think it is at the beginning of its way out throughout the industry. So I think there are a few drop zones that it is on its way out, period, like space land. There are other drop zones like us. Uh, I hear people bitch about this next statement, but it's become such an industry and such a business, and people complain about that. But that industry and that business has given us better jump planes, more frequent turbines, more loads to fly, more high-quality flying through, more high-quality coaching. Everything's gotten effing better, dude. I just think it's a lot better reflection and representation of the sport of skydiving instead of a bunch of, like... The kind of woofo image that you have in your head about what a drop zone might be like, a bunch of yahoos and some trailer in the middle of nowhere, some some shitty airplane. Like to me, Spaceland is a far better uh, reflection of the sport and is a place I would much rather be than that podunk trailer in the middle of nowhere. But I think when someone comes and they get that more professional feel and we're you know we're treating it like we're we're showing them this sport instead of taking them on this crazy ride, I think a lot of people connect with that. In a, in a better way. I mean, Spaceland, 
has had the most, Spaceland Houston has had the most A licenses processed per year for the mm-hmm. last X number of years for USPA period without having the highest first jump numbers out there. I don't think it's a coincidence, and it's exactly what you said, Nick. It's it's presenting an atmosphere of learning, professionalism, people like like... Larry, you're a janitor, right? You, you you cuss as a sailor on a ship for your profession. That's what you do for work, right? Yeah. Now, <laughs> how many people, you're a business professional. We'll just make it that, the short version for now, right? How many of your friends are business professionals who also skydive? A lot of our skydiving friends are that, right? Yeah, they are. It's not a poor man's sport. It is not. I hate, I, I love it to be a poor man's sport, except for uh, I don't want the bum next door skydiving. You have to have a decent sum of money to get in the sport. You have to have a decent sum of money to highly invest in the sport. So we're attracting uh, business professionals. A lot of money or a lot of passion, and then you figure it out. It, that's very fair. <laughs> but back to it, we're, 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 uh, we're, we're trying to commit. We're trying to, to interest business professionals. So I think the reason we have such a high return is because, and I say high return, that's a business word, but really ultimately our goal is the most jumpers we can jump with, more friends to skydive with. I think the reason we have that is we truly – invest in that atmosphere so i mean that's i'll go on this tangent forever tangent tantric tandem tandem i'll just go on this tandem forever so man uh, yeah I, I digress i'll get off my soapbox so what point did you start flying in the tunnel uh after my aff level four four okay and what was the uh, first tunnel you flew in in um in austin okay they weren't even open yet uh, but they were taking flyers that were skydivers. It was like pre-opening. Cool. And I had screwed up my level four so bad. I was all over the place. I turned upside down. I was super stiff and fighting it. And Kara said, like, this, there's this place called iFly, and it just opened up in Austin. You should really go there and get 10, 15 minutes in there before you do your next jump. So she called them right then and there, and they had 10 minutes open that night. So I said, yeah, book it. And I went there with Joshua and... We both flew and I went back, and from there it was a lot, a lot smoother. Helped work out the the kinks, and then the tunnel in Houston, I got invited to come fly there uh, Christmas Eve and flew for half an hour uh, for free, just you know, because they had opened up and it's just the timing and the right person standing next to him when the opportunity came up. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that, that Jason Hyder was a good man to have on the inside. <laughs> he was he was a good egg man. I uh, I don't think it's just the right person to be around i think it's the right personality presented as well i think uh some of that credit goes to you you got invited i, I think you see a lot of our friends around the drop zone hanging out um who don't get invited and they're nice enough guys <laughs> but you're a nicer guy than them so <laughs> is that a nice way not to insult that's that, was that person cool i remember meeting dalton uh, <sighs> at spaceland and he said well you want to go fly in the tunnel tonight and it was you know only in austin they weren't they weren't done yet in houston and i was like ah oh, man I don't, I don't know if i want to drive all the way to to Austin, he's like, no, we'll get in my plane and fly there. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he took Joshua and I, and we flew up there and landed at the airport and got in some, you know, really nice SUV and went over and flew in the tunnel and then flew home. And he fell asleep at the controls and told me, just watch that and make sure it stays here. I'm like, oh, shit. Did you have any clue how to fly at that point? <laughs> had no idea. Did, did, you, did he let you take the controls for a little bit? You know, I don't remember if he did or not, but he did put me in charge of watching controls while he slept, which made me a little nervous. <laughs> Autopilot was on, at least? I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you're alive, so something, something worked out. Oh, man. He, he let me fly his plane for a, a, maybe five minutes. Mm. And I could maintain my altitude or I could maintain my heading. I couldn't Not do both. both. Nope. No fucking What's way. he have? 
Uh, it's a really nice set. I think it's a 182. I want to say it's a 182, but man, it's nice. All glass. Uh, it's 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 a nice plane. And you can't just point straight and stay straight? Is that what you're nope, telling me? Nope, couldn't do it. All right. I got to fly a helicopter. I mean, I could point straight and stay straight, but I'd start descending or ascending. Okay. Well, that's still a straight... I, what kind of hell? Oh, my helicopter. You got my attention with helicopter. It was an R44. We had a heli boogie at my house, and then I had like an hour left <laughs> Hold over. Hold on. Can you just stop at that and say that statement one more time? Please. Uh, we, we did a, a heli boogie at, at my, my house. house. And uh, <laughs> when, I, when, we, when we bought the house, I walked the, the lot, and I, I said, this is the lot I want. I want this one, and this place looks perfect to have a heli boogie. It's like I get this great big, huge yard, and I had to clear it with the... Um, the homeowners association, the builder, some third party I had to clear it with. And they all said yes. I was shocked. And I, I did a little flyer and I took it around the neighborhood and told everybody, okay, this is what's going on. If you wanna if you wanna fly in the helicopter, I'll I'll cover it. Just come on out and, and nobody took me on up on it. I was what? shocked. Wow. None of my neighbors really? Free wanted helicopter to go up ride. in the helicopter. I think it was because it didn't have any doors on the helicopter <laughs> and that made them nervous. So then I was like, you could get in and like watch two of the other people jump out and they're like, No. You got a seatbelt on, man. Take it easy. Man, I I imagine, so I've never been in that position, but I could imagine being told, you can ride up in this helicopter, you'll be seatbelted in, and watch these two people <laughs> jump out. And I would petrifiedly say, absolutely, let's go. Like, I'd be <laughs> yeah, scared. Let's and go. they could see their own house. It was going to be right over their neighborhood. So cool. Mm-hmm. So fucking cool, man. I want to park real quick on some facts that you just told me. You got permission from your homeowners association, from the Lions Club of America, from the Porsche Club of Katie, or whoever <laughs> else you, you got permission from. And, and I want to point that out because I'll tell you, when you advertised and posted the fact that you were doing I don't know if it was before or after Deering. I don't remember when it was. I immediately got hate messages. I don't know if you know this. No, I, I heard about some of the drama. I was just, I was really hoping someone would come talk to me about it. Nobody yeah. did. I was really dying to yeah. have that discussion with whoever was complaining about it. I wish they would have, and I challenged them all to ask you. Mm-hmm. And I asked a couple quick questions, and I don't remember who it was to. I think you might have been one of them. And very quickly, I was like, oh, cool. And I asked, like, hey, man, just checking in. People are asking questions. I just need to know answers real quick. And I got answers I needed right away. And I just want my like, fuck. Go talk to the guy yourself. He's doing everything right. Yeah, we filed the notum. We did uh, all the paperwork. We got written permission from the property owner, from the homeowners association. Um, the uh, FAA contacted uh, them because they, I think they questioned whether it was legit or not, mm-hmm. and they got the verification that they needed. And we were on a major pathway uh, landing for IAH, mm-hmm. so we rerouted IAH traffic. Intercontinental uh, for three hours so we could have a heli boogie. <laughs> that, that is cool. That's awesome. That is sticking to the man. That's great. My neighbors do not like the fact that we're on this major thoroughway. So you know, they I was hoping it. at least, I, hey, I stopped the traffic for three hours. They weren't flying over our neighborhood. <laughs> There's just the noise of a helicopter in this place. <laughs> man, first of all, to those haters out there who see crap on Facebook and immediately think somebody's doing something wrong, Ask that person legitimate questions because I'm positive they will either happily and cooperatively give you good answers, which is what you have always done if I've asked you questions, or you'll find out the truth. But, man, you'll find out more people that do legit shit than not. Mm. But it leads me way fast forward in the conversation. I did not think I'd get here this quickly. But you've also done another back or front yard heli boogie before or skydive into your own yard. Yeah, yeah. You know where I'm going? Yeah, tell me about that. That is, I, When I saw that on Facebook, I giggled my ass off. So I, I don't know why, but when I was a little kid and I dreamed, but like I think everybody dreams about flying, mm-hmm. but for some reason I flew head up 
And the way I would go up is I would like kick my legs and that would take me up. So when I got into the tunnel and I saw Dalton like go from the bottom of the net standing straight up and shoot up, I'm like, holy shit, that's like my dream. He exactly. can do it. I was like, I, I'm, I just got to get in the tunnel and I've got to do like learn how to do this and make myself go up and mimic my dream. And then uh, there's there was a drop zone not that far from my house. And I thought, well, well, crap. I mean, they could probably just on a regular load swing by my house and drop us off. And I contacted them and they're like, yeah, sure, 600 bucks and we'll drop you off after we drop off a couple of tandems. So I invited Constantine and, and Dalton and, uh, and they flew up there with me. And uh, the weather turned out to be absolutely perfect, which was... Uh, kind of odd and the day before it was like 40 mile an hour winds and the next day was perfect and and jumped out right over my house i was spotting and i could see like all over so much farther than i thought i'd be able to and then and then landed it was actually in the neighbor's yard right across the street because it had a bigger field and it was a little sketchy to land in in my own backyard but i want to go back and try it again who, who lives about. in this house now um I'm actually friends with them on Facebook. I don't remember the name off the top did, of my head. Did you knock on their were, door? Hey, I've always wanted to skydive in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I contacted them a couple months ahead of time, actually, because uh, I, I, I thought I might have to file a note and that I'd have to get written permission from them. They were absolutely open to it. And when I talked to the pilot, he's like, no, we don't, need to do, we don't even need to file it because that's out in the country. We can just do it. So um, the pilot was, was okay with it. So we were, and everything went, went really smoothly. And got it on video and stuff and I'm, I'm just dying to go back and do it again and my son joshua wants to come with me and do it next time what was it like being in the airplane spotting and or under canopy and looking down and recognizing where you rode your bicycle picture yeah, like yeah. how were those memories coming back to you oh it was a flood of memories because I, I used to run a five mile path around that area and i could see the whole running path like all at once it was looked pretty small i saw all the neighbors houses just just a ton of memories flooding in as I'm looking over it and watching the video later. Uh, it's really cool having that. And as a child, those memories are so big. Like I can remember a, a park as a child that we called Cheese Park just because of the, the features that were look like a big piece of Swiss cheese. And visiting as an adult, it's like, man, this is the smallest fucking park ever, right? Mm-hmm. How much smaller did it look for you? And you're right, kind of insinuated, it looked tiny from above. Yeah, just a little tiny part of the world that uh, that I grew up in, but I just feel incredibly fortunate to, to get to do some of this stuff. You know, it's um, every once in a while we just be on the plane and we'll look at each other and go, "God, do you believe we get to do this?" Like, if, like we kind of get you get accustomed to it after a while, and it starts to just be kind of nonchalant. But then just stop for a moment and think, we're freaking like strapping these things under our back and do we're jumping out of planes, and it's so cool. Do you do you usually have that? That kind of aha, holy shit moment on the ground, or do you get it in the in the plane while it's still happening? I usually get it in the plane when yeah. you know a little bit before exit. Do you remember the last time you really had that feeling? Like it was earlier this year for sure. <laughs> what the hell are we doing up here? This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, it's very peaceful. Uh, everybody just assumes when they oh you skydive you're an adrenaline junkie. It's like no, not not at all. I don't I don't like adrenaline. That makes you kind of shaky and edgy, and it's an uncomfortable feeling. When I'm going up there, I'm just like hanging out with my friends. The scenery is amazing. I'm falling asleep on the plane on the way up there. It's super, super relaxed. So you're someone who's obviously good at setting and achieving goals. Do you have a process for, for setting goals? I, I try to identify all the things that I, that I don't know, like all the things. Cause it, everything seems really easy. I, I do this presentation 
uh, at work when people go, well, it's just, just add that button and make it do that. And so I asked the team, I said, hey, print out every city, every single bit of code that when you hit the submit button on the shopping cart, the, the code that executes. And they printed it out. It was almost a ream of paper. And I put a great big giant clip on it and I passed it around. Everybody just assumes, well, just add that button. And there's always a lot more behind anything. If you, The less you know about something, the simpler it seems a lot of the time. You'll have to watch these guys doing whatever sport it is. And it looks really simple. And then you try it and you realize how, how hard it is. So to try to demystify the things that you don't know and find out the scope of what you have to learn because... Once you have, once you know the the things you have to do to get there, then you can actually start mapping out a plan. But if you just start doing it and you're just kind of figuring out what you have to do as you go, you never really know what your plan should be. You can't map it out. We've joked around with the word vision board because of our buddy Jimmy Wynn. And <laughs> you, you, uh, you say you, you find out what you don't know and you start mapping it out. Do you actually write out plans? Do you put things in front of you? How do you, how do you envision it? I've used this really old school day planner from Franklin. And so I kind of yes. use that as the starting point because I like, I think there's a, a connection from pencil in hand, writing on paper that's different. I think it makes a memory connection that you don't when you're just typing on mm -hmm. the keyboard. So when I take notes, a lot of the times I like to write them instead of type them and I feel it sticks in my brain. And when I take, when I study, I read stuff and then I write it down in a notebook because I think, and I may never go back and read what I wrote, but just the act of writing it down, I think, makes it more clear. So skydiving, I, I started to learn what do I need to do, was interviewing people, asking them the various things, and I started writing it down and then mapping out a plan. Okay, I got to get to 200 skydives, and then I can do my first my first wingsuit jump, and I couldn't put the camera on, and then I got to do this, and I got to do the first jump course at the bridge, and I got to learn how to pack, and I got to... And this is just, you start making a list and it's like, holy crap, there's a lot of stuff here. And if I'm ever going to get to this goal within this timeline, like to start at the end at the goal and then work backwards and start, well, if I'm going to do that by then, then I've got to have this done by that time. And then I got to do this by that time. And it starts to fall into place. And it never, you never hit it exactly, but it gives you a template to kind of follow. But you did start putting time constraints on it. You said, this is when I want to do this by. Yeah. How important was having a time constraint or time a, a, a deadline to your goal? Well, I was getting old. I didn't think I was going <laughs> to live past 50. So <laughs> I, I made it a four-year goal. I hit it uh, in two and a half for, for Italy, but I didn't really feel like I had completely completed my goal because the original goal was to do it in Switzerland. And I was originally going to go to Switzerland for my first wingsuit jump. I did Norway first and then in, in a tracking suit and then the wingsuit in Italy, and everyone told me, don't do your first wingsuit jump in Lauterbrunnen. It's, it's, they're much lower cliffs, they're more technical. That's it's Switzerland? Like, yeah, okay. go, to, go to Brento, it's a much higher, it's an overhang, and <coughs> reduce the risk. So I took the safer, the safer path. So all of this goes very back to the beginning, and we're going to retrace, I think, a lot of these steps. <coughs> At some point, you realized you wanted to start skydiving. What was it? Was it base jumping that made you want to start skydiving? Was it sky? What made you want to make the first jump? It was the wingsuit base jumping. Okay. But I didn't realize it until a couple of years later that <coughs> I'm pretty sure my dad had influenced me on it because when I was a little kid, over and over again, he told me the story about Icarus and the father and son, and they went up and flew around. And that story was stuck in my mind. 
And because I just remember seeing that first time with Alexander Poli flying in Lauterbrunn, and I'm like, I'm going to do that. Like, I didn't even think, like, I, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to go figure out what it takes to do it. And I think it was all those stories that my dad had told me that m- made me have that impulse. I also think cave diving, I got into it because of my dad, because he used to take me um, camping every year on Labor Day. And he took me one year when I was about six or seven years old to Lake Michigan. He brought this big um, rubber raft. And he flipped it over and we swam underneath it with our masks on up inside of it. And it was like a little cave. And that made a huge impression on me. So when I saw these caves uh, when I was younger, it's like, oh, I, I've absolutely got to do that. So uh, you say cave diving, you mean scuba diving yes. in very narrow spots. Is that my, my understanding that right? Well, some of it's huge. Like there are caves that are mammoth in size. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's small and tight that you got to crawl into, but I, I was a claustrophobic person. Like I had no interest in crawling. I never thought I would do that, but you kind of work up to it. The first caves that I went into were pretty big open caves, but they're beautiful. It's uh, it's really pretty. Another peaceful kind of activity. It's also a very expensive sport like skydiving is. <laughs> well, what are the other parallels between scuba diving and skydiving? It seems like there's a lot of overlap. We get and we have a lot of scuba divers in the sport. Yeah, actually the poster that you or the picture that you posted on the on the ad, if you look at that body position, it's pretty similar to what you see in a skydiver in, in a belly position. Um, it's just you, you, you've got flow dynamics whether you're in the sky or in, in the water you're you're putting your body in a position to move through the water and so when you're fighting really high flow and you're trying to learn and your body's not in the right position and you're flailing around the water feels three times more powerful than it is because you're you're not dynamic and so you get yourself in the right position the right trim the right buoyancy and you kind of cut right through the water. So just like you know, flying head down, you kind of get that really smooth feeling. Um, there's a lot of similarities there. And then managing the risk. The difference is, is that in, in cave diving, you usually have a lot of time to deal with an emergency because you've got a lot of, of gas available to you, and you've got to kind of stop, think, act. And that that kind of came natural to me and I was worried about base jumping and skydiving because I think you learn how you respond in an emergency and it I felt like my initial response was always kind of slow and deliberate like well that might not work (laughs) in base jumping if you got to react really quick like am I gonna if I'm gonna respond correctly and stuff but getting yourself in the right mindset it's I think about risks and mitigation strategies and contingency plans and those, whether it's whether it's your life, whether it's your work, whether it's you know, sports that you're, you're trying to reduce the risk, those that same thought process, pilots, you know, it's identifying the risks and having those mitigation. How do you prevent it from happening? A mitigation strategy, and how do you deal with it if it actually comes to a fruition? Which is what's your contingency? One of the, I think almost everybody's biggest fear is what you're describing because. If everything went perfect in skydiving, I don't think anybody would be scared of it, and I don't think it would be nearly as exhilarating. So, so many jumpers ask themselves, what if, and they have a lot of doubt in in their emergency procedure uh, responses. A, do you deal with that doubt? And I'm going to guess your answer is yes. And B, how do you deal with that doubt when it comes up to make yourself more powerful? I mean, I, I was really concerned about what would happen, um, like even just in a cutaway. And when I, I've only had one cutaway, and, and when I had it, 
and everything settled down. I looked down like, shit, I don't have my handles. Like, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I was like, I got to walk in there now and say I don't have my handles. And they're going to ask why. And I'm like, well, I had to zip up my suit. And so like, I couldn't do it if I had handles in my... So we got to ask real quick, uh, how many jumps? Uh, 1270. One cut away? One cut away. Did not keep your handles? No. JG, how many jumps? Uh, 740. Wait a minute, hold on, just... How many jumps? Oh, 740. Yeah. And Justin, uh, excuse me, Mr. G, how many cutaways? <laughs> Zero. Zero, okay. Nick, how many cutaways? I'm pretty sure I've got eight. eight? I think it, it could be the seven, but I'm pretty positive it's you. eight. Are you scared of your main parachute? <laughs> uh, I'm scared of non-cascaded line sets and the tension nuts mm-hmm. that are created when you are jumping a pretty worn out line set because you're poor. Uh, that does make a lot of sense, <laughs> the rest of it. Um your first cut, how many jumps? 660 jumps on my first cut. Or, yeah, six, 630. And how many do you have total now? Uh, did I say eight? Oh, how you, many jumps? Yeah. Uh, 8,500 and, and, and a little bit more. So one in a thousand, the law of averages is working fairly well here. Did you keep your handles on your first jump? That's uh, I kept my reserve handle. I dropped my cutaway handle. But on the, the airport where I was jumping, there was a flight school that one of my friends and one of our fun jumpers works at. And he had just walked out onto the deck at the flight school, it's looking at airplanes, and my cutaway handle landed right in front of him, and he <laughs> walked it back over to me. My first cutaway, I was like you. I did drop my cutaway handle. Um, you can, I was wearing video. It's really entertaining because I was so mad at dropping my cutaway handle, I threw my reserve handle Ooh, at it. That's a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> like, you see me pull my reserve and just huck it at, like, fuck do, you. Do you remember letting go of your handles after everything slowed down? I don't. I had to go back and watch the video. And actually, on the video, you could see one of them was just kind of hanging out on my shoulder. Yeah, Velcro And then kind of slowly fell off. Oh, it was right there. I could have grabbed it still. So now when you review EPs, do you review EPs with the picture of them in your hand? I have not. Yeah. So first of all, if you're listening to this show, review EPs as if you're going to pull handles like you mean it. Um, if you ever see me in the plane touch my handles, I touch them with an intent. For example... Mm. I place my hands on my cutaway reserve the way I would actually do it. I pull one with each hand. You'll see me mimic peeling my cutaway handle, pulling straight arm to full arm extension, pausing and clearing my risers to make sure they're free and clear and pulling my reserve. Uh, Make sure you understand every detail of what I just described. If you don't, please do what your instructors have trained you to do. uh, With more experience comes more understanding. Um, and one thing you'll also notice is if you look down at my hands right now, what are they? What are they? Only them. They're fists, right? And man, ever since that first cutaway throw in my handle, dude, it, it has become part of my practice. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage anybody, practice what you're going to do. There's nothing wrong with losing your handles. It beats losing your life. How, I, think, I think you could think of that now. How many jumps did you do in the last year, you think? Double the amount of cutaways I got last year. <laughs> you beat me to my next question. How, how many uh, how many cutaways did we do? How many were uh, you the- I got nine cutaways this year. Um, actually, ten cutaways. I cut away and or pulled my reserve eight times, and Jeff Freeman cut me away once in free that fall. That is really uh. wonderful. <laughs> I was in free fall doing an AFF instructor course. Yeah, He's supposed to deploy my main parachute handle. He has been pulling a fake handle to simulate deployment. Mm -hmm. At this point, he's going to reach back. That fake handle's gone. Grab my pilot chute, deploy my pilot chute while holding on to me. He's training to be an instructor. Mm -hmm. It comes to pull time, and you see him kind of like go. It's not what he's really doing, but it looks like he's going any, mini, miny, mo back and like (laughs) back and forth. And he says, I couldn't see your main handle. I couldn't figure it out. He just froze up. I've been training instructors for 
almost 50, no, no more than 15 years and I've never had this happen. And he just reaches over and grabs my cutaway handle and pulls it. I'm like, <laughs> man, uh, so nine to 10 cutaways, nine of them to my choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I, I probably did 100 and 150 jumps this year. So I know very little about scuba diving. Is there an, like is there an equivalent thing to emergency procedures to a cutaway to a malfunction? Like what what does that look like in scuba diving? Um, we operate like for cave diving in the rule of thirds. So you reserve, uh, well you, you enter the cave consuming one third of your of your air mm-hmm. and one third to come out, and then one third is reserved for an emergency or for your buddy. So if you and I are diving together, one third of my gas belongs to you, and one third of your gas belongs to me. Okay. You're not allowed to use that. And then we have lines that we run through the cave so that you have a continuous guideline all the way to the exit. And then we do all sorts of drills where you lose your mask or there's a silt out. And how do you exit the cave on the line without pulling the line out and getting yourself into worse trouble? How do you communicate with your buddy if you're with someone so that you both know what to do? How do you use both of your minds if you get to an area and you're not sure what to do? so that you can both figure out what the right way is to go. There's lots of different markers that you follow and so forth. So I think there's there's a lot of focus on uh, mitigation strategies, mm-hmm. preventing things from going lo- wrong in the contingency. Um, for emergency procedures, one thing we do, we do a, uh, a drill, S-drill, safety drill at the beginning of, of the dives. And I still do those with all of my buddies. Um, and a lot of people stop doing them after you know you get out of class. It's like um, pin checks. Yeah, it's very yeah, so very similar. Some people stop doing them, but so we've people got, doing a good job are still doing them. Exactly. You got two tanks. You've got two lights. You've got two knives. You've got two two lights or more typically, um, and then you've got hoses that are wrapped around your head. And one of those hoses goes to your buddy if there's an issue. So you'll get in the water. You'll get parallel to each other. So you're floating, and then you'll undo the one that's around your neck, and you make sure that it's not obstructed by anything that it's a clear path you pull the hose out so that it's a seven foot hose and then you do a little bit of a swim so that you can verify that okay if the shit hits the fan everything all the gears in the right place so you're not dealing with trying to correct the gear while someone's holding their breath and starting to freak out A, a dirt dive like let's make this as real as we can before we actually get deep in this cave and find ourselves fishnooked. Yeah. <laughs> so. Do you have any scary moments? Like, have you had any terrifying moments underneath the water? I um, I had a a buddy that was pretty close to me die on a dive that I was supposed to be on. I ended up not going because he was going to be diving with someone that I didn't feel comfortable with, and he died on that on that dive, and um. Um, that was scary and I didn't dive for a couple of months after that and then I got into the cave and um, I, it was here in in, uh, in Texas actually at Jacob's Well and I got uh, about a thousand feet back and uh, I just started to get this really uneasy feeling. It was all in, in my head but I had been kind of skip breathing and I was getting some CO2 build up and I was feeling lightheaded and I just felt convinced that I was that I was about to die, and uh, and I was happy actually because my first two thoughts were one I don't have enough insurance for my family, and so I'm going to fix that if I get out, and then I thought I'm going to ruin the team's perfect safety record here in the 
but it was actually all in my head. There was actually no, no real physical um, danger. It was just, but I mean, I guess if you have, if it's in your head, things can go wrong because you're not going to perform right. Very early on as a student, I got, I started to exit the wrong, the wrong way out of the cave. I was with an instructor and it narrowed down to about, you know, 12 inches in diameter or so. And, and I couldn't get out. And then my mask is coming off and it's flooding. And that was pretty sketchy. But other than that, it's been, it's been pretty smooth. I would die. I would die scuba diving. I'm never doing it. Sorry, world. I was about to ask. So, Nick, I know recently you've taken to some water besides a bathtub. Yeah. How do you know this? Did I tell you? How you doing? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't answer my question. What are you so doing, Nick? He sw- I am terrified of the water. Like, I just do not do well. When I was a really young kid, I had really bad ear infections. They put tubes in my ears so the infections could drain. One of the very first things I ever remember learning in life is don't put your head into the water. It's really bad for you. You're going to lose your hearing. Don't do not do this thing. And, man, that really stuck with me. And I never learned how to swim. I didn't want to go in the water. just didn't like anything about it. And then I grew up and still <laughs> didn't, didn't do it. But... Uh, Steven, by the way. Steven ratted me out? Oh, yeah. Did, did you see the video? I sent him one. No, he didn't show it <laughs> But to I went to, uh, when we had some weather last week, I, there's an LA fitness by my house, and they give out free week memberships to try out the gym. So I went, eh, they got a pool, fuck it. I'm going to go over there and check it out. And so, uh, yeah, I spent three days of uh, trying to calm my nerves in the, in uh, the water. But good for I, you, man. I, the, the last day I was there, I probably did... 10 laps in the pool mm-hmm. and uh, was able to get across the pool without having to touch the bottom and without having a panic attack. So it was a lot of progress. Nice. So first of all, what's on your right hand? Oh, I burned myself. And so uh, you're seeing a bandage over a burn. Okay. I was like, what the heck's going on with it? Second. Uh, um, second degree burn? No, second question. Yes. But Sam diagnosed it as a second degree burn earlier. Could I? <laughs> um, the, no, I thought you were just telling me that's what it no, was. No, you said you had two questions. <laughs> um, so you've started swimming. Are you going to swim more? And I guess there's a third question. Uh, yeah, I would, I would like to swim more. I would just like to feel like I've actually conquered the goal. So I went to, um, to coffee with uh, someone who learned to jump with us. He's in the military. Aramis is his name. Uh, army guy, I believe. I don't know, but he's got a cool name. He's he's a pretty cool guy. He's a nice fella. We, but um, does he have a beard? I feel like you have I, to have a beard. I know if your name's he, Aramis. I know <laughs> that he has had entertaining facial hair. Uh, I know I've seen him with a good mustache beard. I don't think so. I think okay. he's a, a clean cut fella. But he, uh, man, I was really flattered by this. Actually, he sent me a message on Facebook. He's like, "Hey, this is the weirdest message that I'm gonna send today. But do you want to hang out sometime? Like, do you want to just go get together as people?" He's like, "I feel like I'm asking someone out on a date." But he had seen, um, you know, Jordan Peterson. Yes. So uh, Stephen and I went and saw Jordan Peterson speak, and he saw me there. He saw me at a coffee shop in Houston that I, I never go out in Houston. So he saw me at this this place. Unless it's the and Waffle Bus. Fuck yeah, Waffle Bus. Let's talk about that later. <laughs> and um, and he had seen me in a third place and was like, hey, I saw you at these places. We're probably like-minded. Maybe we'll get along. You want to go have coffee? And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Let's have a mandate. And then like three months, four months goes by. And we hadn't made it happen. So then I reached back out to him like, hey, you did the brave thing and said, hey, stranger, let's hang out. So we ended up getting coffee and we had a really nice conversation. We sat there for a few hours and he said, you know, I've always wanted to do this, uh, this woodworking thing and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, well, what's stopping you? Like, you can go find a woodworking class. And he's like, yeah, that's true. And 
I said, you know, if you do that, then I will, uh, there's this, I, I've always wanted to learn how to swim and I'm terrified of it. If you do this woodworking class, then I'll, I'll figure out swimming. And then another six months goes by. And then one day on Facebook, he tags me in a picture of him at a woodshop class with like a cutting board <laughs> or something that he had made. And it just said, balls in your court, buddy. So ever, ever since then, I've lived with this guilt of like, man, I haven't done my fucking part. <laughs> so the I was going to try and do it in September, but the exercise in September was as much as I could <laughs> do. I didn't have time to, yeah. to swim after that. And then... Uh, yeah, now here we are in November. It's happened. And you've swam. So now my, my last question really goes back to you and Larry, and you've already answered it. Would you ever consider scuba diving? And let me give you a context. Not a cave dive, although, I man, I'm super sketchy about cave dives, Larry. I'm interested. I'm curious, but I need to scuba dive first. Let's go to fictitious story here. We may not, you, you don't want to go anywhere with me, but let's go to uh, uh, Belize and let's go stay at a nice little resort with some super crystal clear blue water, pretty dive places. Larry, I'm sure you know where to go. You know, I haven't been to Belize, but I wanted to check out the Belize Blue Hole and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. jump there and then scuba there. Edit oh. a video so you go straight from the skydive, you hit the water and then cut to the video of you going That's down a great video. diving. That would be really cool. Um, hopefully they do that again. Would you consider scuba diving? Uh, I'd maybe think about it. If I st- spent enough time at a depth where I could safely return to the surface without causing any serious physical damage to myself and got okay with that. But the like your story, what you're describing, that, that freak out moment, I would certainly have that moment. Like it, The moment that I knew I was too deep to just go back up to the surface and be okay, yeah, I would totally have that panic moment and I would need someone there to... To settle me down, we uh, we snorkeled in Belize. I had a life vest on, <laughs> <laughs> but so did everybody else that rode out on our fucking boat. So we we get to Belize, and I had snorkeled in Hawaii, which was super beautiful and completely shallow. Where at? Um, Anama Bay. Yeah, yeah, that's on uh, Oahu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah kind of the east uh, of Waikiki. Yeah, south south. Yeah, yeah. east. Yep. And that's all super shallow, right? So yeah. if I freaked out, I would just stand up. <laughs> cool, no problem. And so yeah. I, in my thought of what, what snorkeling in Belize was going to be like, it's like, yeah, I can snorkel. I did that shit. I can stand up. But instead of being right on the beach, they take us like half a mile offshore. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to be different. And so <laughs> the guide is like, hey, uh, you guys want life vests? And no one said anything. And I was like, well, I can't be the only person that asks for a life vest. So I'm just going to see what happens. I got these flippers on. I'm going to hope for the best. And then I jump in the water and nope, full fucking tunnel vision freak out. And I'm like, nope, hey, can you throw me that life vest you were talking about? Because if uh, you don't, I'm going to die in this water right now. And then as soon as I said, give me a life vest, everybody else, oh, yeah, I want one too. I want one too. It's like, God, you motherfucker. Why can't you just say it in the first place so I didn't have to have this moment? Make me the bitch. But man, it was really beautiful there. Yeah, the and snorkeling's we- the best anyway, because all the best views are in the first, like, 10 feet or less. Unless you're exploring some crazy cave. Well, but you got to have lights. Like, so if you go in the ocean very deep at all, everything, everything just turns gray. So it looks really boring. Because of take, lack of light. Yeah, take lights. But in that first 10 feet, you get enough light that it looks pretty. The fish look pretty and so forth. So snorkeling, snorkeling's great. And if you, if you add scuba to it, just go 10, 15 feet and check out a little bit deeper. But how deep, uh, I think you just answered the question, but how deep do you go before it's not, Visually is appealing, 10 to 15 feet. 
30 feet? Yeah, I mean, you get down to 30 feet and it's pretty gray. How okay. deep can I go before I can't have my freak out and return to the surface immediately? <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a personal one. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but I mean, I mean just physically, like physiologically. How deep can I go before returning to the surface too quickly is going to give me the bends? Well, if you go just to 30 feet, 33 feet, you're doubling the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So if, if you were to pop to the surface, that would not be good. You'd easily get an air embolism or something. So An air what? Air embolism. So just the expanding of the, of the oxygen, the, the nitrogen in the system yeah. can, can cause problems. Just the air itself, as it expands, goes into a lung and can, can do damage and so forth. But I've dove to the bottom of a 10-foot pool I, numerous times as a child growing up and even and more recently as an adult. And then we were snorkeling in uh, Montego Bay without life vests, just saying. Uh, and, yeah, you're more of a man than me. It's fine. <laughs> no, I grew up swimming. I grew up in the ocean. And I dove to a depth that was about 10 feet. And I don't even know if it was 10 feet. And it seemed like the pressure was so much more intense. Is that just because I'm in the middle of the freaking water? It's in my imagination? I, I don't notice any difference unless okay. I have my dry suit on. Uh, when you have the dry suit on and then it starts to, to pressure, the, I forgot to put one of the hoses in one time. I'm going down the, the, the line and it just starts to tighten. I had some momentum going and I'm like kind of reaching out, trying to stop myself because I couldn't put any air into my dry suit and it'll just shrink you, you know, shrink wrap you. <laughs> so you actually pressurize the dry suit the from dry inside suit. out. Yeah. So it's not. But if you're wearing you. a, a wetsuit and you have water there, I, I can't tell the difference. I'm 300 feet deep. It, it feels the same oh, as 10 geez. feet deep. No, don't do that, Larry. 300. <laughs> what's the deepest you've dove? 300 is the, the deepest I've been. And you can do that in a wetsuit. I mean, you could do it in a wetsuit or a dry suit. I was in a cave, so it was 70 degrees. Do you and I need, get cold easy, so I'm definitely going to be in a dry suit. Do you ever? Do you need anything specialized equipment-wise besides? Uh, you need a special gas mix. Okay. So uh, I think I was breathing 50% helium and 12% oxygen, and the rest was nitrogen. I'm sure the next question you get asked is, do you get out of the water talking funny because of the helium? Uh, yeah, yeah, it can definitely, I mean, you're taking it out of your mouth. It's not going to last very long, but yeah, yeah. you definitely, it, some of the people wear a full face mask when they dive really deep and so they're on the helium. And so they sound, the whole conversation is very high That's pitch. That's ridiculous. I couldn't take A couple of chipmunks down there at 300 Hey, Larry, feet. I'm dying. Help me. <laughs> That's exactly how it would sound. <laughs> oh no, def- definitely not doing it. Yeah, the, the whole Larry, I'm dying. Help me. That, that absolutely destroys me. So, um. Man, I I, uh, I I tried to convince Val into learning scuba. She actually learned to scuba dive at some point in her life. I never took any lessons or anything. Um, I've, I've been in the water with scuba equipment on once, five feet deep. So I've been in the water with scuba equipment. That's it. Um, I can't convince her to do it again, and she has very limited interest in scuba diving, unless we do like some beautiful spot like that. Mm-hmm. And I've actually spoke with you. You've given me invites to figure it out and learn, and I just... Man, it's time. I, I think I think I need to figure out a trip to to something like Belize, and then I really part of it is, is I want to share it with Valerie, and it's going to be a trip like that that's going to convince her to do it. So I need your help figuring this out at some point. Sure. Help me trick my wife. <laughs> well, also I'm going to invite Nick and his wife and uh, make a group trip of it. So help me trick Nick and his wife as well. Dude, I just decided I'm going to start calling her my wife. Did you? Yeah, like last week, I was like, "That's that would be funny just to do that." Yeah, I was wondering, like, did something? Did I miss something? No, we're not married. <laughs> nope. 
In any of my homies who live with their girlfriend for an extended period of time and act the way they do together, I just respond to, I refer to them as their wife. Yeah, wife, it's fine. Doesn't it's bother. easier. Yeah, or your stupid brown child. Yeah, my tiny, <laughs> tiny dumb brown girlfriend. So uh, there's a question when, when people find out about skydiving. One of the common questions is, where's the most beautiful place you've ever jumped? And in my mind, that's not a question that I would ask another skydiver because I just don't think about it that way. You know, we're thinking more about the flying and the, the what's happening on the jump than we really are thinking about the scenery for the most part, right? So um, is that how it, is there anything in scuba diving that's going on other than the beauty of what you're observing? Uh, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, technical people, engineers and stuff get into cave diving because it's, it's all the gear. So they, you know, you're, you spend more of your time planning the dive and fiddling with your gear than you do actually on the dive. And, and that's kind of a cool aspect of the sport that I think a lot of people are attracted to. I man, I I love love thinking about going to some place to skydive though. That would be really pretty. Like I'm dying to go to Puerto Rico. Ever since I started skydiving, I wanted to go to the uh, Puerto Rico boogie, and it, it looked amazing to wingsuit and free fly over the, the water and stuff there. I haven't really been to many drop zones. I I, I I've been you just jump in your yards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't jumped at many places that I haven't organized helicopter boogies. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't gone to many boogies. Like I, I think I've done one jump in Florida. I think it was Deland, and then San Marcos here. Uh, some other couple little tiny drop zones in Texas, Arizona. But like I haven't done any of these really cool exotic boogies that that you guys are going to. Mal- I haven't been to any of them either. Dude, Maldives, Maldives, however you say it. Have you seen this boogie? Do you know what I'm speaking mm, of? No, I don't. Dude, JG, pull that. Uh, I'm going to start calling you JG now. I don't know where that came All from. All right. It sounds kind of like borderline like you're a sexy pop star. Borderline the motherfucker sexy. <laughs> JG, pull up the Maldives. You know what I'm talking about, Justin? It's that Maldives. JG. He's so hot right Skydive now. Skydive thing. Dude, first Hansel. of all, where they do this event, this boogie, is one of those pictures that's a screensaver on uh, wallpaper on your computer. You see this picture for ads. It's really gorgeous. <clears throat> um, uh, our buddy Frank Chance is going, and he'll, he'll be there. Um, who's actually going to come be on the show sometime soon. I actually talked to Frank recently. Um, oh, also DeLand. Do you know what's going on in DeLand in February? Mm-mm. Do you, Nick? Uh, the possible Gravity Lab Roadshow. Dude, we are packing up our bags. Uh, I haven't packed anything. That's a lie. No, I know. We we are going to pack up our bags. I'm actually investing into uh, some Pelican cases to take our uh, studio on the road. Uh, manufacturers have already agreed to help support us by giving us a conference room to host a show for two to three days, doing two to three episodes a day. Um, we have people sponsoring the airline ticket and a little bit of our places to stay. So anybody else who's listening who wants to support it, send me an email, monty at gradulabradio.com or any of the 20 ways you know how to get a hold of me. Please let me know if you're interested in supporting it. Um, I can't promise any of the people will come through because our schedules are volatile. They're subject to change. But right now, communicating with Bill Booth, um, Tom Noonan, a buddy of mine, Hook Bill and I up. Why would he not be back? On why, the show? Wouldn't oh, he? why wouldn't he? Are we, we going to talk to Tom Noonan again no, without uh, a drunk, crazy person in the room? No, he won't <laughs> be here for that trip, but he's coming to town next year to be here for a trip. Okay. So we will have Tom back on, but Bill Booth is uh, right now talking with me about being on the show. Uh, he's agreed to be on it. John LeBlanc uh, has agreed to be on the show previously when I come out to town. So we have some really cool people. I expect to, uh, I'm going to talk to a, a Norwegian free flight team that's in town. They're third in the world right now. Uh, Zion, have you heard of them? 
No. Is yeah. it a, like a VFS team? Uh, three-way artistic. Okay. Uh, Anna Mox, uh, Anne Mox, Mox, I can't say her last name. A couple other people. Um, there, There's a couple other people on my list of folks to talk to. I really, uh, I want to reach out to Shannon Pilcher and get him on the show. Uh, one of the godfathers. Oh, can we do a swap cast? Dude, I, if. All I, the kids I, are doing them. Dude, I would totally do a swap cast with Shannon. I just don't know if we're good enough for his show. That's he, true. He's more than good enough for ours, but the other way around, I don't know how that'll work. So yeah, Delance, sorry. I just wanted to take a temporary plug. Oh, and one other temporary plug. How do you say Gravity Lab Radio in Spanish? Do you know? Does anybody know how to say Gravity Lab Radio in Spanish? No, you, you're no asking idea. a bunch of white, white people. <laughs> because Aaron and Pedro are going to host a Gravity Lab Radio fully in Spanish. So either you or myself or Justin, whoever, we're going to sit behind the board, and those two are going to sit here as a full-on Spanish version of the show. We're going to do it once. We're going to see what's out there for the Latin crowd, for a lot of our South American friends. We're actually going to pump out at least one episode and maybe more. So I got some shit in the work for Gravity Labs. I've been behind the scenes being ninja. You, you, you learned about this one just now, didn't yeah, you? No idea. Yeah. So sneaking some shit in on you guys. Um, I, you're looking at me like I'm stupid for the Spanish one, but I'm over it. No, I just... Was excited to sit here and know nothing about what they were saying. Oh, I dude. get maybe five five percent. I um, man, I've been dealing with a lot of Spanish stuff lately with business, including emails because uh, Pedro and Aaron include me in a lot of emails of what's going on and trying to keep our business flowing. So you're getting your PhD in Google Translate, um, dude. For straight up, man, PhD Google Translate is shit. But I've been really impressed and shocked at how much I've understood. Like there was an email the other day that was two full paragraphs, and I understood seventy five percent of it, not of the words. I don't believe him through context not for a second. Because you know, you you see a sentence with three big words, and you're like, okay, I know what that sentence said, not all the words in the sentence. So, uh, dude, yeah, but they're gonna do a Spanish show. That's the goal. So you didn't answer my question about where the most beautiful place. You, I don't. Maybe Time I didn't out. ask it. The most Can I beautiful, get that wine? The most beautiful place to to, to dive to scuba dive. Yeah. Can I get that bottle? Oh yeah. Here you go. Thank you. Um, I mean, personally, the Bahamas was the best for me. We went and hit the caves there. They had been on National Geographic, and one of the caves that was filled with all crystal. Everything was crystal. I know you can't go see this, but it was <laughs> it was really amazing. <laughs> Everything you t- put your light on just glowed. All the stalactites, the stalagmites, all crystal. It looked like something you'd see in a movie. Like it just didn't Where couldn't possibly. In the uh, was it Andros Island? Uh, I'm not sure, but it's um, there's only one guy there, Brian Kakuk, who has access to those caves, and you have to dive with a guide, and so you have to dive with Brian. And we went there for a week and dove all the caves. He starts taking you into the really crappy, ugly caves just to see if you have any skills, and then slowly works you into nicer and nicer stuff until you're seeing these amazing, amazing formations. Is it because um, of the access to those amazing formations are that challenging, or is it because he won't share it with you unless you're really good enough? Because he's afraid you're going to break stuff. And uh, uh, my, my buddy actually broke like this 12,000-year-old four-foot stalactite. He bumped it with the tank, and it, uh. just, it looked like it wasn't going to break, and then in slow motion it just started to fall and collapse. He can't, and he just paused. like He froze for like 30 seconds. He didn't move. And Brian looked back at him and gave him that look like, what the fuck have you done? And he, he came to me after. He's like, you have to delete that video. I still got the video, though. So if you ever access <laughs> <laughs> bringing it out. Sometimes um, you just got to blackmail your friends. Yeah. St. Thomas is really beautiful. 
Um, that area was really nice for scuba diving. And it's nice shallow water with lots and lots of color. Now you're talking my um, language. Um, How shallow? Uh, like you start off the beach. So you just walk off the beach. They even have a little path. So you can like follow the path around. Cool. And they've Built got for some children. things labeled. Right and it's beautiful. And then um, i trying to think where else. Curaçao. Curaçao was beautiful. Really, really nice. I think I think you'd like the shore diving over the boat diving. Mm-hmm. I the agree. boat that the water gets rougher. I You're kind of stuck out there. out there on the boat. Don't, don't, don't make me From the shore, you can be three feet, four. You just kind of gradually work your way in. Have you done anything around Cozumel? I have. How's how's that? Cozumel's beautiful. Okay. We do a lot of cruising. Valerie and I, that's just kind of what we enjoy. And mm-hmm. Cozumel, if you do any cruises out of Houston, Cozumel is almost a guaranteed stop if you're out of Galveston. And there's a lot of great places. Um, our next trip we, we do in January, we're going to a little uh, spot club, Mr. Sancho's. I don't know if you know the beach club there. Mm-mm. A pretty pretty decently known little beach club. But um, what, what would be a good spot to scuba in Cozumel, go scuba diving? I mean, I did the, the boat dives there, so they took us out. I'm not sure exactly where we went. We went about a half hour from from there. But if, I, if I'm looking and I read into it, I can find some pretty good things. There's a lot of stuff in that area for sure. Might be a good way to get Val, convince Val for a good spot. I think so. Okay. I I, uh, I just, I know it's got to be like super pretty postcard kind of idea. Um, there's never a guarantee the water is what you want it to be. I'm, I'm guessing. Curacao would be a really good spot too because it's it's got that, um, that European look to it. It's a really pretty city. A lot of, of different buildings and stuff than what you'd see here. And then the water was just fabulous. And it was nice, still, calm water. Of course, the Great Barrier Reef would be amazing, but that's that's a heck of a trip. That's but one hell of a drive. So I'm yeah. going to sound like a Neanderthal compared to you because I say Cur- Curacao. Uh, where are you saying again? Curacao. Curacao. Where is that at? Mexico? No, it is um, is down near um, on the east side, down past Puerto Rico, farther south, that area. Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, Turks and Caicos? Turks and Caicos are awesome. How close is Curacao to that? Uh, I don't remember. Okay. I, I have to start, man, I've, I've only recently, like I, I recognize a lot of the names of the Bohemian and Caribbean islands, mm-hmm. but only recently have started actually understanding where they are. Like I had no clue the Bahamas were where they are mm-hmm. until I went to the Bahamas. So it, I get completely lost. Um, I got to figure these trips out, man. So what would you recommend? I wanted to... Start scuba diving, and let's say Valerie and I are going, or, or Nick and his wife are going on a trip in February. Should I start learning now, or should I learn right before we go to be current in information? Just don't go to some beautiful beach location and take the course, because it's such a waste to be in a pool learning to scuba when you're on this beautiful island. So do the, uh, do the pool work and the classroom work and all that stuff here and get it out of the way, and then do your open water dives wherever you go. I actually don't have much experience diving in, in the ocean. I have maybe 100 dives, but most of my dives have been in, in caves. I know Florida is one of your favorite spots, North Florida, I believe. Yeah. I know yeah, I, at least an annual trip there, if I remember right. Oh, yeah, three, four times a year. Yeah, dude. It, it looks... I. I look at the videos, or not videos, but the pictures of what you post from some of those trips... And two things immediately hit my mind. The first one is, oh, my God, that's so beautiful. And number two, I'm going to shit my pants if I'm in the middle of that little, like, it, 
I don't understand how you fit through some of the holes in the pictures you post. It's funny because most of the most of the skydiving friends that I have think that cave diving is crazy, and then my cave diving friends think that skydiving is crazy, and, and there's a few that that do both. Mm-hmm. But it's just like skydiving, right? You get the right training, you go through the process, you start to feel comfortable with it. You don't go straight from your open water course into squeezing through some tiny little hole. There's so many things that I could show you right after you got certified that are just kind of the the entrance, nice, big, open, go 10, 15 feet into the, into the entrance and kind of see, see what it's like and see inside. It's perfectly safe, nice, big, giant areas to dive. Um, yeah, to cave dive, you don't have to go into tiny, tight little spots. So I could give someone a pretty decent briefing about when they're traveling to another drop zone, about what a good drop zone is going to look like, and, and more importantly, what good gear is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Is this a problem when you travel that you're going to come into a, a place that has subpar gear? I, I, I don't ever rent gear. I have all my own stuff, so I'm, I'm sure it's an issue. Like most of the places um, that I dive in Florida, they don't even really rent much they rent tanks and maybe they'll rent regulators but they don't typically rent out like bcs and and that sort of stuff because they kind of assume that everyone's going to come with that portion of it um buoyancy what's the bc again i know what it does i can't remember what stands for the buoyancy compensator compensator so um yeah basically you just want to make sure that you're you're buoyant first and Mm -hmm. that you're kind of sitting still in the water and then kick and swim because if you're too buoyant or too negative, you're going to be working really, really hard to keep yourself in the right position, and you're likely going to trash the reef or cause problems, and you're certainly going to get tired. You're going to break a 12,000-year-old stalactite? It'll work for you, Nick. You can actually keep yourself <laughs> level automatically and then just go straight, unlike an airplane. What? You In an airplane, you oh, can yeah, go, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah. So would would you recommend someone even let's say for this trip that he's talking about would you would you recommend someone buy their own gear to to do a trip like this? If you're traveling, it might be it might be a hassle. I mean, it might be okay to to rent at least do it a few times and make sure you like it before yeah. you go out and invest in a, a bunch of gear. For what, sure, what, that's what's a, cool. a good setup cost if I'm going to buy new scuba diving equipment? What am I going to spend? Is it like a rig? You know, I, I'm not even sure because I just don't buy that kind of gear anymore. Um, like the gear that I use for tech diving is completely different than what you'll see in a in a typical shop. So typically these BCs that you'd buy are going to be really padded. They're going to be structured in a way that it's going to put you kind of upright in the water instead of horizontal like you want to be. It's going to have a bunch of pockets and it's going to maybe have some weight integration uh, and it's going to have a, a connection on the back to attach to aluminum 80 tank where the cave gear that we buy is it's much more streamlined. It's smaller. Um, it's like a stretchy deem suit. It's like, a, well, one of them, it's, <laughs> it's just a plate. You have a, a plate, a metal plate, aluminum plate with a strap that goes around it. And that's pretty much it. And so it looks really uncomfortable, but because it's so secure to your body, mm-hmm. it's really, it's actually really comfortable. So I took some people... Constantine and, and Melissa and some of our friends came out and we, we put them in side mount gear. So you're wearing two tanks, you're wearing a very uh, thin harness and it kind of puts you in the water in this right horizontal position. Like if you try to, to go down or, or to sit up, it kind of puts you back in this neutral position, which is where you want to be. And once you try it, you really like it. So 
if you're interested, before you buy stuff, let's meet at a pool and you can take the gear that you have that you're renting or whatever and we'll try that out and then I'll put you in a, a configuration that's a tech configuration and you can decide which one you like better. And you're going to spend about the same price, but I've got buddies in Florida and stuff where you can get really, really good discounts. Got the hookup already. can barely swim. All right. <laughs> I got 10 laps in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I, uh, I've got to figure it out because it's, uh, it's something that's been on my list. Uh, one of the things that's come to my radar recently and one of the things that attracts me to you and one of the things I like about you is your smile. Is your smile. Is, is your chiseled <laughs> chest. How good you look in under uh, or super or uh, Iron Man. Sorry, under I roots. just thought he was building you up to hit on you, so I no. it's helping him out. Is your desire to constantly grow and expand your horizons. You don't seem very satisfied with the knowledge you have. You seem like you constantly want to grow and and the people one of my goals is to be an old person, to, to live to a nice old ripe age and enjoy my life. And it seems historically uh, consistent that people who get there are always learning something new, doing something different, pushing outside their comfort zone. So I just think it's time, man. It, it's, it's, it's been a goal. I, I want to at least start. Um, I'll approach you about cave diving when the time comes, but I think it's uh, time to kind of like my first AFF jump. Let me go give it a try. Let me go see what it's about. Let me go see what I think and give it a try. Nick, maybe one day I'll convince you to go on a dive with us. Dude, I'll go snorkeling in shallow water, no problem. It's just when you get me in a spot that I can't get out of the water when I need to, that's that's when the panic sets Hanama Bay. You've been to Hanama Bay. Yeah. Have you been to Hawaii? I'd go back. Mm-hmm, I have not. Hanama Bay is a very shallow, very protected reef area. It is meant uh, for tourists. Like If you came to Hawaii to visit... Growing up, we took you to Hanama Bay to go snorkeling because that's where uh, it is a phenomenal place to take everybody. So it, it really is good. And you show up with a can of cheese whiz. It's I probably against the law now, but back in the '80s, it wasn't against the law to have cheese whiz in the water. So and what do you do with the cheese? Is this bait for the fish? Oh yeah, dude. The fish would straight up like get to the nozzle and like feed off of your fingertips. So you did you see any of that going on when you were I, there? I don't think so, but I I wasn't tuned into that. I don't think I would have noticed. I, I, man, it's been, God dang, it's been since the 80s, so it's been quite a while, but I think I remember seeing, like, it's prevalent, it, it was very noticeable, like, if it was still going on, I think you would have noticed it. More or less than the presence of spam. Oh, dude, I go, oh, man, spam is so, I never <laughs> thought I would say until I lived in Hawaii growing up, spam is so good. Dude, spam and rice was absolutely lunch at my school growing up. There, there were days that spam and rice, red bean and rice, was what we ate because that was the only choice we had. It's very weird. It, dude, it is very weird. But now I cannot walk by a can of spam and not just oh, it sounds so good and horrible. All, you have you ever eaten spam? I have not. Spam's meat, isn't it? <laughs> That's a good kind question. Of meat paste <laughs> sort of thing. I, I'm not sure that the people who are making it actually know. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Spam is meat. Meat, is meat slime. It? Yeah, meat slime. So I want to go back into skydiving, man. So you knew when you got into the sport that wingsuit base jumping was a goal for you, right? Mm-hmm. What What was it that? So that's what you. That's what brought you to skydiving. What was the catalyst that made you say, "I'm going to make this step. I'm going to make this happen." I mean, just just seeing the videos and, okay. and, and doing it, that's really what got me started. And when I came out to um, San Marcos and started jumping, I really liked it, and I met some cool people. So um, 
I got some good advice from from both Connie and Kara because you know they kind of saw me trying to move too quick, and they said just you know you you need to enjoy the whole process because your goal's out there a ways. So enjoy what you're doing right here and get everything you can out of it. Um, and that was good advice because I, I felt like I almost wasn't enjoying where I was at in the moment. And typically I, I really focus on just enjoying the moment where I'm at. But I, like I wanted to get there. And uh, so I kind of just slowed down a little bit. And so let's just have some fun and focus on some fun dives. with And, and it'll eventually come. And since then you, you, you've very quickly de- uh, developed your skydiving. What was the next big accomplishment besides getting your license? I think going and doing the first jump course, which is I, I probably did it way earlier than most people say that I should. I had about 100 skydives. Oh, you mean the base jump course? The base jump okay. course. Um, I, I had about 100 jumps when I when I went to do that. And, but again, I, I went with, uh, I did it with Snake River Base, which I thought was a good group. And, Who runs and, that one? Uh, Tom Aelo. Okay, that's who I thought was Tom. Yeah. Um, and, if you're going to go with somebody, that's a huge name to go with. Huge. Yeah. yeah, the thing that I liked about his program was, is that we take like five rigs out there and just do five jumps in a row. But the biggest mistake that I made, if anybody knows me, they know how I hate to pack. I, I, <laughs> I went to that course not knowing how to pack and that was a huge mistake so if you're going to do the first jump course get them to ship you a rig and pack it like a dozen times or more so that when you're in the course you're not trying to figure that out um i almost always pay pack my my base rig now and i I feel way more comfortable packing that than i do my skydiving rig like maybe every 200 jumps i'll take my rig home and pack it in private where no one can see me just to make sure i still know how to do it let's be real the two hardest parts of close of packing a parachute is number one putting it in the bag yeah number two closing the really tight container and in a base rig both of those steps like a putting a bag doesn't exist right b the container super easy to close mm-hmm. so the shitty part of packing doesn't exist with a base pack job i, right. I you just got to be ocd and like I like to make the nice clean folds and smooth it all out. It's it's actually a very peaceful part too. Yeah. I enjoy it. I, I, I get lost in it. Like I don't enjoy packing a main parachute, but packing a base rig, I for full uh disclosure, I have five base jumps. I have probably packed uh I packed a shitload of base rigs. I when I went to the bridge, my first base jump I landed and packed it in less than twenty minutes. And I I was at Bart Stone Street. I, do you know Bart? Mm-mm. Bart Stone Street, a buddy of mine, was with me, and he was Jason Hyder was with us, and he was helping Jason. He turned around and goes, "You're done." I'm like, "Yeah, dude, I'm I'm done." And he had no clue I probably packed 18 times before I showed up. I really, I also have 60 reserve repacks, which mm-hmm. is a huge help to understanding it. Um, I I, I agree with you. I, I highly recommend knowing how to pack. But I want to go back to what you said. A hundred jumps, man. I don't necessarily agree with those who are critics of somebody learning to base jump with a hundred skydives. I think uh, for, for various reasons, and I'll get into them, it's okay with somebody with 100 jumps to learn to base jump. What's your take on it? You, you've done it now, now that you've been there. What's your take on somebody learning at that experience I, level? I think it's enough. I, I think if you feel comfortable under canopy, um, that, that it is enough. I, I would say most of the people that have said, I should have a lot more jumps, are people who didn't have that many jumps when they did their first base jump. And I've seen this on a regular occurrence, people who saying, well, you should have 1,200 jumps before you ever go do it, and you should know exactly. The canopy on a base rig is completely different than flying a skydiving rig. 
And it's also one thing to say you're going to jump off of a, a, a low cliff someplace versus jumping off the bridge in Twin Falls with water below you and a giant field to land in and a giant 310 cubic foot canopy that flies like a bus that you can land really soft and smooth. I felt perfectly safe with it, with the people that were, were doing the course. Um, I started working with Apex Base. Really, really liked those guys, Todd Shubotham and and Jimmy and, and all those guys are Luke. really, really good. And Luke. And Luke. Oh, yeah. Luke was my, he was my, uh, my wingsuit instructor when I was preparing for Italy. And he was there jumping with me on my very first jump. We got to train in Dallas. He was awesome. I want to go back for one second to Tom. And I've never met Tom personally. I don't know Tom. So this, there's very little interest for me in this next statement. Um, I take a lot of pride in Spaceland because of it's my home, because I've invested a lot of energy in the school. It was the one of the best programs in the nation that I knew of when I came to it, which is why I came to it. I've had a lot of involvement since, and to this day I will say it's one of the best programs in the world, uh, especially because of the structure and understanding of training and exactly what I see in here of Tom. If you want to go learn to base jump, there are so many great schools out there. But anytime somebody tells me they go through, he his a Snake River, right? Yeah. That goes through Tom. I I never know how to say his last name. Aello. Something like that. Yeah. 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 A e i l l o or something like that, dude. Freaking, yeah, that is a good place to learn. A hundred jumps, man. You're a hundred jump wonder who has not done things the way you've done, who've not put the thought into the way things you put thought into, and you've seen some of the haphazard kids who start jumping. And kids is not an age thing. It's a mentality thing. Do you think everybody with 100 jumps is ready to start base jumping? No. Yeah? No, and I think if you do other sports that you have to manage risk, I think some of that carries over. I really believe that even though cave diving was a completely different sport, that there were aspects of that that helped me um, in my base jumping. Risk and stress management is a huge part of both sports. Um, and, and really even a huge part of your job and your career, although maybe a different level uh, of, uh, of jeopardy, of payback. Um, but man, there's no doubt risk and stress management translates from career and job to hobby and wh- whatever it is. So I firmly believe that. And also I firmly believe that a great example, I worked with a guy with 400 jumps and we were doing 270s over the pond with him swooping. Uh, Nick, if I told you 10 years ago I was going to teach a guy with 400 jumps to do 270s on the pond, Mm -hmm. what would you have thought? Uh, I would have been surprised that you were teaching someone on that level. I think that people uh, on that level have learned to swoop in places that there isn't someone who knows better to tell them not to do that. Yeah. Now, I will tell everybody who's listening, uh, this fellow who I was working with, God, I wish I could put his name off the top of my head, uh, had several multiple days of coaching with Greg Miller, with Kurt Bartholomew, and I can't remember the third person that he had been coaching with, another big-name coach. So he, he had received a lot of high-focused, high-level training, and then he focused on that training and practice and drilled, and I think that's exactly what you've done. I, I say I think. I've, I've kept a close eye on you just because... My first question was fear. What the fuck are you going to do? And my immediate next question after talking to you was, what the fuck are you going to do, bro? Because you had good answers. You had, you had good research. So now your next step is that base jump, that first base jump. How did that live up to your expectation? 
uh, is an amazing, cool feeling, right? Because you just get that. It's so much different jumping out of the plane where you get the resistance and you still feel the wind. When you jump off that bridge, it's really, you kind of feel it in your in your gut. You're you're falling and it's a different feeling. How, how long does that opening take? How long does it feel like it takes? Five days. <laughs> uh, it, it feels like it takes much, much longer than it actually does. And you go back and watch the video a lot of the time. You're like, man, it really felt longer than that. You know, like you, you, you go off the bridge and you're like, oh, that was, that was definitely at least a three-second delay. And then your time's like, okay, it was two seconds. And then when you pitch and you're like, well, why hasn't it opened yet? Like it should have opened by now. And you mm-hmm. kind of get those feelings sometimes. I don't know if we... Did, did you say how many base jumps you have now total? Uh, I have 85. Okay. So not a ton. Low numbers. Is there um, is there one that stands out more than all the rest? Oh, the, the first... The first wingsuit base jump in, in Italy. And... Because, like, y- you go to... Uh, I went out to Arizona, and I went in the balloon, and I, I jumped in my base rig off uh, out of the balloon. And so you kind of get a feel for it. But when you're standing on the mountain, you're standing on this firm, nice firm surface and you see this massive depth below you and the mountain's still there. When you jump out of the balloon, yes, it's it's still. It moves a bit when you push off, so it's a little different feeling. But you don't have this mountain right in your face because you kind of start to go a little head down and you're looking at the mountain right in front of you and then it starts to come out. So you kind of get close to it. And it's a very, very dramatic feeling. And that you don't experience that in the balloon. So that initial jump from Earth is, yeah, it's really hard to describe. It's just, it's everything I wanted it to be. And then probably one of the next jumps was in the Dolomites because the mountains are like white. And it was early, early in the morning. The sun's just starting to come up. The entire valley was covered with clouds. We had to wait for about a half an hour for the clouds to clear out. And then jump off, turn left, fly along the wall and then go right past this pillar and then make the turn around the second mountain and then, you know, back to the to the landing area. And it was just like, okay, this this is why I did this. This is why I took this journey for, for this jump. And I didn't even have to hike up the mountain. We took the helicopter up there, so <laughs> it was really cool. The look on his face right now, dude, it, you, you just turned into a freaking child, mm-hmm. dude. You look, turned into a five-year-old on Christmas. I love that look. So ultimately, one of your goals wasn't wingsuit base, and, and this is a question. It was wingsuit proxy more than that. Was that is that true? Yeah, I, I, my wife will will not like hearing this at all because you know, I said, "Oh yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna proximity fly." And you start moving your way closer to the to the mountain. I, I haven't really gotten that close, um, but but everything speeds up as you get closer. It, the visual's hard to understand because the mountain's so massive and when you jump, something that looks not that small is is huge. But as you start to get closer to it, everything starts to go by faster. And I'm still staying 40, 50 feet away from the wall, so yeah. I'm, I'm a long ways away from the wall. I think a fair comparison for those of us trying to picture it is drive down the road and look at a field across the way and it's barely moving. Look mm-hmm. at the telephone poles next to you and they're screaming by and then peek out at the road right next to you and it's moving at mock speeds. And so the closer it gets, the more things accelerate. Um, I make this analogy not because I've wingsuit proxied, 
but because I could imagine what it's like to be under a wingsuit near a cloud. I could picture surfing cloud canyons. Not that I would ever do such a thing. Uh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful image, right, man? Um, and, and really, that sensation of speed becomes super huge. Do you want to get closer to the cliff over time? Saying, "Will use another story." Do you want to? I do. I want to work my way closer. Um, again, it's just feeling safe about it and, and getting closer to the ground. Like when you're in, in Italy and you go to the far left wall, you start to get close to the wall, but you're also going over the talus and you're going over the section of, of ground. So you're, you're getting fairly low to the ground, but you've got good speed. And, and, and that's really the thing is maintaining really good speed. You don't want to start flying flat. I'm not a big fan of going to the drop zone and flying with a bunch of guys flocking where you're, you're flying super dirty and slow because I feel it's really poor training for, for base jumping. Uh, I really like to, you know, have that feeling of flying steep and fast because that's your that's your safety margin. Have you tried free flying in a wingsuit at all? Have you done any of that? I, I want to so bad. I'm freaking struggling with flying on my back. I'm trying to figure that out. I've been really slow in figuring out how to fly on my back, but I really dream of being able to do head down jumps and carving and so forth. I want to uh, go backwards just one second just to help some of our listeners figure out what you're describing. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when I'm wingsuit base jumping, particularly proxy flight, I want to be basically spilling air. I want to be going so fast that at any moment, if I needed to save my ass, I could basically cup or grab air to get out of the situation to make a short explanation. Is that a fair statement? Somewhat, it's both the the pitch, yep. and you you can pull your wings back, so you're you're flying steeper, but it's it's having good speed and um, and being able to you know to to go into to breaks to be able to even out and get some some altitude out of it. And where in skydiving, it's not uncommon. People are flying super max flat. Um, which you're saying is going to translate into poor muscle memory, which you might fly super max flat base proxy, and now you have no outs. There was a video that I saw that scared the crap out of me. The guy was on a on a, a big mountain, and he was flying, and he was flying it super flat, and he was coming up on uh, on trees, and he just didn't have anything, any power there, and so he basically just plowed into the trees. He actually survived, which is amazing. He He broke some of the big branches off of the tree and stuff. And he woke up in the hospital like the next day and he had survived it. It was like, okay, I don't, <laughs> I definitely don't want to make that mistake. And Luke really helped with that because Luke yeah, yeah. We went out to Dallas and, and we flew and he says like, okay, you're, you got to fly a lot steeper. And then we did the next jump. He's like, yeah, yeah, you got to take it steeper. And it, it felt like I was flying like, like this huh. because I hadn't been flying nearly as steep as, as I should. And he, he had me doing some really crazy stuff with flying really steep and making really super hard turns and, and forcing me to just completely go out of control so that I could feel what it was like to recover from it. It was great training because I was flying way too flat, way too conservative, and um, I was just plowing through the air. <laughs> so I want to uh, help me with numbers, see if you remember this number. I believe it was August of 2016 that we lost a large number dominantly in Europe of wingsuit proxy guys. I believe it was actually 16 in 2016, if I remember numbers right. Is that coming familiar to you at all? I mean, those actually sound like low numbers. Yeah, I, um, thought it, I thought I, it was more than that. I, I think we're averaging close to 30 a year. Yeah. 
there was that one month that it was extraordinarily high, and I, and I want to say 16 in 2016, but regardless, it's a ridiculously high number, and I think a couple things are going on there. Number one, um, early we're still in the early phases of, uh, of proxy flight said and done. So a lot of pioneering is going on, and, and then unfortunately in pioneering days, the Oregon Trail, people die when we're pioneering. Uh, but number two, I think a lot of uh, those people who have died have seen what the experts are doing. Luke Hively has put out some really dope footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucid Dreams was a four that had the big, was that his biggest one? Um, he had some great proxy flight in there, and then, and then people want to go to emulate it. And I say people, people like you want to go emulate it, but the difference is, is those people try to emulate it right away where you're doing your research and your homework. Um, I, I just want to point that out because I think it can be done. Say, I mean, I think fucking Wingsuit Proxy is just ridiculously. I think I think it's crazy. I think it's stupid. I think it can be done safely. I, when I say I think it's stupid, I, I just, it's impressive as hell, man. And then... Anybody who's out there looking to do it, or excuse me, anybody who's out there saying it can't be done and it's too dangerous and it's too stupid, do you agree with that? I, I'm I'm older. I, I've lived a good life. Uh, I am willing to take a little bit more risk, but I, I mean, I do have a family. I have kids. Um, I had a bit of a scare in, in Lauterbrunnen on one of my jumps there uh, that got my son pretty emotional when he saw the video from it. Um. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely dangerous, and 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 I am I'm a very inexperienced wings you know um, uh, wingsuit base jump pilot. I'm there's really amazing talented people, and I'm like at the very beginning and, and trying to learn. I've had plenty of people tell me that I'm I'm going too fast and that I should slow down. Um, I think I'm being pretty conservative, but I'm, overall, you know, Have it's, you had- it's definitely dangerous. Have you had accomplished proxy flyers tell you you're going too fast? No, it, it's typically the people that say I'm going too fast are, are people that are that are not doing it. It would be so. I, I don't think I've ever told you you're going too fast. And first time we met, I asked you questions, but mm-hmm. since then I've seen something. Um, but it would be people like me who only have enough experience to understand, but not enough experience to have done, who are saying you're going too fast. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and. Man, if you ever think somebody's going too fast, ask them legitimate questions. I, we, we said it earlier. Um, people will very quickly prove you right or wrong. I, I'm a firm believer in I'm going to believe you have the best answers. I'm going to believe you have the right answers. I'm going to believe you have the right intent. Because if I believe all those things, you can very, very quickly prove me wrong. Or I can believe you're a dipshit and you're doing things too fast and too stupid. And it's impossible or next to impossible for you to prove me wrong if I go in with a negative connotation. So rather than doubt people, go ask Larry Hack, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Bart Stone Street, a name I mentioned earlier, was very similar to you and his dreams and goals. I'm like, so how are you going to accomplish these goals? When he told me his goal was to do what you said. Well, man, I've been doing some research and I found out I have to have 200 jumps, first jump course, first flight course, all these things that you've mentioned. And he had he had a smart approach. So if you think Larry's going too quick, ask Larry what he's doing. Because mm-hmm. I think you're being super cautious. Yeah, I, I really would recommend, I, I really like the tracking suit to start with. Because you kind of get that feel of what it's like to, in a wingsuit without the restriction of the wings and so forth. So when people at the drop zone, I've had several people at the drop zone that have, you know, they're coming up on 200 jumps and they want a wingsuit. And I say, well, I've got two tracking suits. Let's go do a tracking suit jump. 
and uh, we'll we'll fly it as though it was a wingsuit. We'll fly the same kind of pattern and um, and get a feel for what that's like. I think everyone should do like a dozen at least tracking suit. What tracking jumps. suits do you have? I have a um, a squirrel um, sumo? sumo, and then prior to that, I had uh, Phoenix Fly one. What's Phoenix Fly make? Who makes a sausage? I don't remember. I just like the name of that suit. Just I thought the sausage was a squirrel suit, isn't it? Yeah, I thought it was a squirrel. I, I thought I've never I could, flown I a sausage. Wrong. Me neither. Yeah. They're very popular right now. There were a lot of them in, in Europe that I saw in the last couple of years. So it, you know I've got, I'm, I'm a tourist in base jumping, five base jumps. I'm a tourist in, in wingsuit. I've got about 20, 25 wingsuit jumps. Some of them in actually one of yours, the, your Piranha 2, oh, if yeah. I remember right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's various reasons why wingsuiting just doesn't get me just right. Um, none of them bad. I, I'm all for it. I'm not against it. It just doesn't appeal to me enough to get into it. Um, I'd be curious about a tracking suit jump or two. Mm-hmm. I, I need to take yeah, you up on that. It. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got two. Ta- yeah. I, I know I fit in your shit because I've been in your shit before. Wait a minute. I've been in your, <laughs> your, your, your suit before. So, uh, man, it would be a really cool time, if nothing else, just to go make a fun jump with you, bro. Yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, let's figure something out sometime soon. Um, I, I get some occasional free weekend time. And, okay. man, for sure doing a fun jump with you is... I, 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 my favorite fun jumps aren't good jumps. My favorite jump, fun jumps aren't quality fun jumps. My favorite fun jumps are jumping with people. Mm-hmm. And you're somebody I, I, I could definitely want to jump with. I could picture spending time with and, 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 and getting a skydiving together because... That's one of the most intimate things I can share with a friend is a skydive for me. It's something that means so much to me. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, let's do it, man. So you said your son, Josh, got scared of this jump. What are you, like, can you share this story? Yeah, there's only, I think, two people have seen the video. Okay. <laughs> two people other than my family. Uh, I did uh, very first jump in Lauterbrunnen. Uh, it was dumpster. And uh, there's like a tree right there. Just kind of the angle is jump this way and you're kind of parallel to the wall and we we had gone up there i was i was with a friend and it was kind of windy um looked like it might rain a little bit weather was getting a little bad and we we got to it and we're debating whether we were going to jump or not and um of course i'm super enthusiastic like i really want to jump and i always said i don't want to put myself in a situation where i feel compelled it's really not even that big of a hike out it may be 30 minutes to get out if I wanted to hike out. It's like, well, the winds aren't so bad, but they're kind of coming towards the, the wall. And uh, I jumped, and I'm kind of flying near the wall. And just that 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 sensation of flying next to the wall was so amazing. I was supposed to kind of turn out to the right and clear the wall and just go straight out, but I just hung along the wall for quite a bit. And I was like, okay, I need to, to turn. And I turned out. And I was felt like I was getting pretty low. I was probably down to about 500 feet. And so I pitched. And I was still kind of turning. So I had really, really horrible line twists. And then the wind catches me and starts taking me back towards the cliff. And so my immediate response was to reach up towards the risers and try to, to get out of it. But I was too restricted. And so then I'm trying to unzip the wingsuit and get up there. And I'm, I'm getting in the right line twists. I'm reaching the lines trying to turn the canopy away from the wall while I'm still under line twists. And I get about 10 feet from the wall as I kind of curl away from it. And so now I'm like maybe 400 feet off the ground. And 
it could have, it was very, very close to just having the canopy go into the wall, which probably would have just kind of then slid down the wall. Maybe I could have turned it back out, but it looked really sketchy and the video looked super scary. And I got both the front view and the rear view. And um, so that was a real eye opener. Um, so the next jump, I went straight out and went straight out over the big grassy field and opened. Um, but I showed my, my son that video and you know, he cried about it and he was like, it kind of scared him. Because he could lose his dad? Yeah. Man, how many, how long ago was this skydive, this base jump? That was two years ago, three years, two years ago. Okay. So you've made plenty since. Yeah. And one of the things that has always stood out to me ever since you went on this mission, not ever since you went on this mission, because back time, I, I, I first learned of you in social media. Here's this older guy on social media posting, he's going to do these dreams. Oh boy, new scary guy in skydiving. Who's this clown? I meet you. Rest of the story is all golden. I've followed you since because of your decision-making ability, and you are one of the first ones to post. Everybody's jumping today but me because I didn't feel comfortable with the conditions, with my feelings, with my emotions. And I say that not mockingly, man. So many people are afraid of their emotions, but you take them head on. How much, obviously you deal with it in base jumping, but how do you deal with facing emotions like that head on on a daily basis? Um, and I'm not sure how to answer that. I, um, I don't see myself as a highly emotional person. Um, when it comes to my family, obviously, it, it, it really made me think of more about what I was doing when I saw how it affected my son. When I first saw, showed him the video, I was kind of like, you know, hey, check this out. This is kind of scary. Uh, but it was kind of cool at the same time. And uh, I had survived it and I learned from it. But when I saw his reaction to it, I was like, oh, shit. Like this, this you know, Im impacted him a lot. And uh, and I don't want my family to be worried. I, I know they, my, my wife was kind of used to it because she was scared when I started cave diving. And then I survived that for a decade or so and... So when I took up skydiving, I don't think she was as, as scared. But I know she, she brings it up every once in a while. And I, I brought it up when we went on this last trip to Italy. And I said, okay, here's the, here's the insurance information on my life policy. Here's, here's the things you need to do. I was just trying to really matter of fact, if something were to happen, I wanted her to kind of have the, the, the plan. And, and she got kind of emotional about that because... She's like, I don't want to talk about the possibility of you dying and so forth. It's like, I, I'm just I'm just trying to share information with you. I mean, heck, we could go to Italy and I could get run over by a car while I'm there. It doesn't have to be base jumping. Like, I just want you to be prepared to take care of this stuff. She kind of tends to to just want to not think about it at all. Um, for, again, for me, I mean, I feel like my life plan was a lot simpler when I thought I'd be dead by 50. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Ever since I was a little kid, like, I just remember being really young and thinking, I can't imagine living past 50. And then I started getting close to 50, and I'm planning my trip to Norway for my, my first jumps. And it was kind of, it was kind of weird, because I, I started to feel like, well, shit, am I going to make it to 50? Like, I had just lost my parents. My mom had died. My dad died six months later. Um, I was having a bit of health issues, some high blood pressure and nothing major, but you know, you see your grandparents die, then you see your parents die and it's like, well, I'm next. And 
I was starting to freak out. My, my health wasn't doing good. It was just piled on. Like I had so many things going wrong. I had a lung infection, so I couldn't breathe. I had pinched nerves from some heavy lifting, which was causing my arm to go numb and my back to go numb. And then oh, am I having a heart attack? And my, I just started to, to kind of freak out over the whole thing. And it was really, really stressful. Although skydiving was kind of like the saving grace for me, um, that there was always something to look forward to and there was friends that I was doing things with and it was it was really nice to have that support. But for like two years, I was having anxiety. I was, they put me on some medicine and uh, it was like really fucking with, with my mind. And it like made me feel really suicidal and I was having cold sweats and stuff. And I'm, I'm in Italy. My family's not there yet. Fortunately, I was surrounded by a bunch of base jumpers who were very experienced with drugs. <laughs> they were like, they're like, what is the shit that you're on? And I'm explaining it to them. They're like, man, that's some, that's some really nasty shit. Like that'll do weird things to you and stuff. And, and, um, Steve from from um, from Apex Base was like, I really think you ought to wean yourself off of that. Like, don't just stop taking it, but like take a half of one tomorrow and then take a quarter of a one the next day and stuff. And I remember driving around Italy looking for uh, like a place to jump and stuff. And like really things, crazy things going through my head. Like I just want to, I just want out of this. I'm, I'm done. I'm over. And just knowing that my family was showing up in a couple of days, like kind of got me past that. And um, it was a scary time. It was a really scary time. I was just, I didn't have my shit together. And, but then you know, I, I would go do a jump or I would do something and I would feel, feel great. I got to the top of the mountain and I'm standing on the edge looking. And even though all of these things are going on, this drug is fucking with my brain. I'm completely at peace and calm and relaxed at the top of this mountain getting ready to jump. And then I would get down to the bottom and I would just be so happy. And then I'd go back to the condo with all my friends and stuff and I'd start to feel these anxious, nervous feelings and stuff again. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really tough time. But the whole community of, of skydivers and stuff that helped me through that, Constantine doing all kinds of crazy shit. He always had some new thing. There was the car jump that, that we were doing or there was a jumping with rockets or there was some big way camp that he was getting me into or something that that kept me going. It's hard to get bored with Constantine in your life. Yeah, he's entertaining for sure. Yeah. He's only in my life in a peripheral view. And, and I don't mean that rudely. I like Constantine a lot. I actually get along with him well. Um, it's just the amount of, Inter- interactions we have is peripheral mm-hmm. and oh my god that dude if, if you're bored with him in your life you're just a really boring person that's all there is to it and I, I do want to hear a little bit more about uh about this anxiety yeah you're someone who like to hear you say that you didn't have your shit together like you're a successful handsome fella with a beautiful family and you seem you know uh talented at everything that you're pursuing so where, where do you think that those feelings came from? I, I really felt like seeing seeing my parents kind of fade away mm-hmm. was really tough. And I, I, I really felt like I, I wanted them to pass because I didn't want to see them suffer. I didn't want to see them be in pain. And my dad lived to make my mom happy. And so when she died, he basically had no reason to live. 
and he stopped taking his medicine. He was in Atlanta. It was really hard to communicate with him because he, he couldn't hear very well. He had a hearing aid. He could never figure out how to make it work. And so he couldn't really use the computer very well, so I couldn't text with him. And um, I was actually cave diving, and he had... Uh, I was actually in Florida cave diving both when my uh, I got noticed that both my mom and my dad were in bad shape. And I was I drove from Florida to Atlanta to be with them and um, my mom passed before I got there and my, my dad was in the hospital he had had a stroke uh, and for three days I watched him slowly fade away and I was absolutely convinced I am not going to go out that way I'm just not I have no desire I, I, don't, wanna, I, don't, I don't want my family to see me that way I don't want to experience that. The thought of having a stroke and being not able to move, be paralyzed in some way or something is absolutely petrifying. And I'm not really that scared of, of dying because there's no pain involved or anything once you're gone. Um, so it was just the whole thought of what could happen that, um, you know, my, both my parents died of a stroke. I've got high blood pressure. I got some high cholesterol and stuff. So no matter how much I work out, how much fruit and veggies I eat, I still have these these bad genes that are affecting me. And uh, so I just ended up getting a lot of anxiety and stuff over it. And it's like once it takes over, it's hard to reverse it. And I always, was, always felt like a logical person when I would hear about people having uh, depression. I'd be like, well, just, you know, you've got a great life. Just focus on the positive and just, just straighten it out. And when you're there, when you experience it, you realize no matter how logically I look at it and go, there's absolutely no reason for me to be concerned about my health. Got all these tests, everything come back fine. Everybody tells me there's nothing to worry about. But when you when you have that that moment of, of anxiety, it's like there's just no dealing with it. It's, it just doesn't go away. And, um, you know, I think for the last year I've been really good. It hasn't really bothered me. But every once in a while if something is a little negative – just having experienced that, you'll never be the same because you know what it's like to feel that. And the fear that you could possibly have to go through that again is overwhelming. I remember I was flying to Europe, to, to Italy. And my wife said, you're getting on the plane because I said, I, I don't want to go. Like, I don't want to be on a plane for 10 hours. That was just freaking me out to think about being stuck on a plane and that I might have a stroke or something while I'm on the plane. She said, no, you're going. And uh, I got on the plane, and I was thinking about getting off. The door was about to close, and I was like, man, should I get out of the plane? Like, I don't know if I can do this. And then the door closed. I'm like, well, I'm committed. <laughs> and, and one of the stewardesses came by, and she saw that I was, like, really upset, and she was asking me what was going on. I said, I'm just I'm really anxious about being on this plane for the next 10 hours. And she had the head steward come over, and he talked. He's like, "I've got something like fifty thousand hours of flying. I promise you, this flight will be safe. You'll just be fine. You don't have anything to worry about. What's taking you to Europe? Well, I'm going there to wingsuit base jump off mountains." <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he looked at me like, "Well, why, why are you afraid of being on this plane?" Then I was like, "Well, I just feel trapped in here." So it it was a lot of illogical thought. And I, I think I went through that for some reason because I, I, I was at work and I noticed somebody that was going through things that I had experienced. I could just, I could just see it in them. 
And you, you saw this anxiety in somebody else? I saw this anxiety for somebody at my work, and I started talking to them about it, and they opened it up. They opened up about it. And I ended up texting them when they were having some, some, some freakouts and kind of walking, talking them off the ledge. And uh, I felt like, okay, I kind of found a purpose in what I went through is that there have now been a couple of people that I've been able to kind of help with that and, and help them deal with it. Uh, and tell them that you, you know, you can get to the other side, and life will life will still be good. Fear is for for me dealing with fear is, is go, goes back to an acronym. Fear is an acronym. It stands for false expectations appearing real. F E A R. And for me, what that means, and generally not just for me, what it means is anytime I've had fear, once it's done in hindsight, the fear I had was a false expectation. Mm. So I always have to remember majority of time when I'm done, my expectations were completely unreal. So you know what? F it. Forget these expectations and go in and learn from it. So for me, that's how I deal with fear. Now for you, this anxiety and anxiety is a form of fear. You were dealing with medication for it at some point. It sounds like you don't deal with that medication much, if any, at all now. No, I actually uh, I keep something close by. That is, it's, it's just a comfort knowing that something's there, that if, if, um, if some kind of anxiety cropped up, I'd have something. i take like a quarter of the pill. I think partly it's just a... A security blanket. Security blanket. And, and I don't really hardly ever take it, but if shit hits the fan, I know that there's something that I, I can go to if I had to. So what has allowed you to now overcome this anxiety? How do you deal with it in a point that you no longer need this medication? So what was really key for me is trying to wean myself off from it as much as possible and every single time I had a negative thought was replace it with two positive thoughts. I had always, always been a very positive person. Mm -hmm. I even started to question if skydiving was the cause of me having some of this anxiety because it's not adrenaline but you have these endorphins that you release and I'm thinking I have such an amazing feeling when I get done with some of these jumps, especially a sunset jump, a tracking jump that's just absolutely beautiful. You get down there and you just feel so euphoric. I started thinking, am I am I like using up chemicals that, because I was usually a very, very even killed person, not a lot of highs and lows. And I was going through this period where I felt like I had super big highs and super big lows. And I, I don't think it had anything to do with with skydiving but at, at that time it was it was i was wondering is it that i'm feeling so high when i do this and then i have these big lows that i've messed up my chemical balance by using up endorphins that would be there you know and they're they're gone now and so i go through this de depressing or this anxious period i think it was really more just a, a big collection of of health issues that were going on losing my parents was a much bigger impact than i thought it would be and I started, you get into this pattern of thinking negative thoughts and the negative thoughts lead to more negative thoughts and just re trying to reverse that trend and just think more positively and think about all the things that I have to be thankful for. An amazing, amazing life with a wonderful family and a good job and tons of opportunity to do really cool stuff that many people will never get to experience. And slowly it just got better and better and better. I love the approach you've taken in so many forms of psychology, including sports psychology. There's a term called thought stopping, and, and I believe in it, but I firmly believe in a, another term called sport, or, or excuse me, thought replacement. 
and, and one uh, you need stop thought stopping to get thought replacement, but you can use thought stopping without it. And and to make it clear is whenever I have a negative thought, immediately as soon as I recognize it, I have to yell, not necessarily out loud, but in my brain, stop. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I immediately must replace it with a positive value. And for example, what happens if I get a line over? Stop. I'll cut away and pull my reserve. It might be a simple plan of action that gets me that thought that that thought replacement. Or it might be something of like, man, this is you're stupid. This isn't happening. This is what's really going to happen. Um, I love the fact that you emphasize how important that you take one negative thought and replace it with two positive thoughts immediately. That that, that thought replacement process is so key. And if any of our friends are out there, and I know so many of our buddies who do struggle with what you're talking about, realize the importance of placing positive thoughts. I think, Nick, you struggle with the same idea, don't you? Gosh, uh, I've had anxiety, but it, I don't. I couldn't really tell you what triggers it or... or connect it to a specific life event and it's something that's maybe it's come and gone a couple of times but um it's funny i'm I'm listening to you just describe this this thought replacement process and i do something similar just kind of (laughs) subconsciously i don't i I don't think about it in the same way but i'll just hear myself make a noise out loud i'll go like Mm. i'll just catch myself having that (laughs) like in disgust yeah i'm like why the fuck are you thinking this and uh, so I'm not I'm not thinking into the same terms, but the, the action is kind of the same of like, hey, stupid, like that thought is not productive. Why don't you try thinking about something else? My, I've had to explain to my wife, I'm hungry. Number one, I'm always hungry. Like you could feed me uh, the waffle bus for the day and I would still be effing hungry. Uh, but sometimes when I say I'm hungry, it's actually my thought stopping word. Uh, Cody Swenson is, is, you know, Cody at the drop zone. Uh, Cody was talking to me about getting lost in thought. And I'm like, bro, you need to learn thought stop and thought replacement. Literally, when you have a negative thought, you need to yell stop. And I said it super loud in the packing room. And Did everyone. anyone else yell collaborate and listen? <laughs> yes. And then Ice, Ice came back with a brand new edition. Oh, my God, dude. <laughs> um, thank you so much because, yes, it's the first thing that comes to my mind. But no, but everybody in the room immediately froze and look at Cody and I like something the fuck was going wrong. So I've learned in my life, I can't just randomly yell stop. So I'm hungry. If you ever hear me like in complete, like if nothing's going on and I just randomly say I'm hungry, Nine times out of ten, I just thought stopped. Now you're gonna have to think of a new uh, new safe word, buddy. <laughs> I'm not worried about <laughs> it, dude. Yourself. <laughs> no, I do. It's okay if people know it. I don't mind people know it. It's just better than me randomly yelling, "Stop! I'm hungry." So yeah, if you ever know I'm hungry, chances are I am, and then chances are I might have just done some thought stopping. Getting this positive thought process in your brain has really helped you. How much has that helped you on the side of a cliff? You know, I I, I don't really get that scared when I base jump. I, yeah. I, I really feel really, really relaxed and peaceful. Like, usually the hike as I'm going up, maybe be f- half an hour before I get to the exit point, I might have a little bit of jitters. But past that, as I start getting, I just get really excited. And when I'm standing on the edge, that is my most peaceful moment of the day. There's zero fear. There's just absolute euphoria. And I'm looking out over the, the scenery and stuff before me. For me, the closest comparison or understanding I have is Perrine. Uh, Jason Hyder and I showed up at the bridge on an evening. I say an evening at like 11 o'clock at night. 
we park in the parking lot at the mall right there, right? And we look at the overpass, overlook, and then we walk out to the bridge and we look down. And I did not think of this ahead of time, but uh, Nick, you've probably not been there. The bridge, when traffic drives by, you literally feel the bridge mm-hmm. oh, yeah. shake. And sitting there at 11 o'clock on a random night, looking over the edge of the bridge with the bridge shaking, it freaked me out. I'm like, what the fuck? This is going to... But the, the the first time I walked out the bridge, I walked as soon as I got up to the bridge. I think you can picture the walk up the stairways and then you're at the bridge. Mm-hmm. As soon as I started walking down, I just started visualizing my, my base jump, my exit. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Three, two, one, see ya. I'm going to leave in this body position, leaving for this idea, looking at Evil Knievel's ramp. Mm-hmm. Um, did you use the same sight picture, Evil Knievel's ramp? Oh, yeah. yeah like, it is it's it is the sight picture, Evil right? Knievel was my hero when I was a kid. <laughs> like That was my era. So when I got to Twin Falls and saw that that was there, it was so exciting. Do you know what we're talking about with his ramp? I mean, I've uh, gathered that the, the ramp is still actually there. That goes across. It's a big dirt mound yeah, that's yeah. still there. I went out and checked it. I went right to it and I, saw it. Yes, yeah. yeah so, uh, so for those of you who don't know, a lot of you you know the name Evil Knievel. He was a big-time motorcycle stunt guy, did a lot of crazy jumps. I believe it was the 70s he actually tried to jump the Snake River Gorge right there by the bridge, mm-hmm. and um, he did not make it. Um, uh, he got significantly hurt, and to this day, that ramp has stayed there, and it actually is a topic of controversy within uh, um, Twin Falls and the Brine area, but it, it still sits there, and... and Remember some local, you know Sean Chuma? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was telling us some of the story and some of the controversy behind it. I actually learned a base jump not through a school. I don't recommend the way I learned a base jump, but I had Rory Corrigan teach me to pack a base rig over and over again until I could do it comfortably, not competently, mm-hmm. comfortably. And then I went out there with a buddy who had 30-some-odd base jumps who, under the tutelage of Sean Chuma, taught us to base jump so we weren't traditional and i actually at that point had known miles dash i'm like yo bro i'm so sorry i'm not taking a base course he's like bro you have seven thousand plus skydives you're a canopy coach Mm. of all the people out here to do it i get the way you're doing it like you're actually one of the ones i would support Mm. doing this way so i i don't recommend what i did i recommend what you did uh um man as soon as you walk down that bridge you're lost like cr- cr- climbing, climbing over the railing. Did you say climbing? Climbing, climbing the railing. Japanese is coming out tonight. Dude, I'll tell you what, man. That little Italian wine you gave me. I need to take a picture of that label before you leave because I really like that wine. Man. I'm glad. And Italian is has got me speaking funny, man. Uh, uh, dude, you definitely get lost in that moment. Uh, we are coming close to the end of the show, and man, as common, I've got nowhere near where I want to get with you, dude. So we'll do this again. But skydiving changes our lives, and this is a conversation I don't have with enough of our guests. And Nick and Justin, I need your help with this. I want to start having this conversation more and more with our guests. How has skydiving changed your life, and how has it meant so? What what, what has it done the most for you? Oh, man, every weekend now is not sitting around watching a football game or something, but it's going out and and jumping and, and being with friends and planning cool activities around it. Um, I mean, I... I'm really, really grateful for the for the people that I've met and the impact that they've had on on my life and the things that I've learned. I mean, just you get surrounded by cool people because um, they they don't not only skydive but they a lot of that carries over in other parts of their lives and they're doing all kinds of of cool stuff and um, yeah, I just think it's uh, completely changed my life. 
of all the things you could take away from the sport, you have to quit skydiving today. But there's one thing you could take away besides skydiving. What is that one thing? What do you mean? I don't understand the question. It's a very open-ended question. It really is. So for me, the so take thing, away skydiving, but I could keep base jumping. Okay, that that, that <laughs> no, that's a fair answer. I mean, just the the wingsuit base jumping, the the whole thing that got me into the sport, the whole thing. I love free flying. I I love the big ways, and it's just such a cool visual and all the people involved and stuff. But there's just absolutely nothing like climbing a mountain, spending several hours climbing and talking to people and becoming good friends with people as you're out in nature and walking and stuff. And then at the end of that, getting to the top of this, beautiful beautiful location and getting to jump off from it and and fly it's it's just such a it's an an indescribable experience i would never want to give that up i got two trips planned to europe this year i'm going to go in june go to uh riva de garda my favorite place in italy where my wife and i go and stay and there's this exit point chris burns is going to meet me there we're gonna do this hike up over lake garda and then jump, fly around with, by this church where uh, my wife and I have climbed up to it. Uh, it's like a two-hour hike. Fly by the church, carve out, back out over the water, open up and land on the beach right there in, in Lake Garda. That, like, that's my bucket list item right now. I can't wait to do that jump. And then Sounds back gorgeous. to the Dolomites in late August. To that's do the, the heli boogie, right? That's the heli boogie, yeah. Dude, and the first one, actually, the first place you're talking about is near where this wine came from. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, dude. Mm-hmm. Man, I I think ultimately or initially you got into skydiving for the base jumping to get out and get that wingsuit proxy jump. That is the reason you got into this entire sport. And I just asked you a question that if you could take anything away from skydiving, but you had to quit skydiving. You said it was base jumping, but in your elaboration climbing the mountain, mm-hmm. meeting people, yeah. connecting with others. Ultimately, what was your goal as a cherry on type? What you're taking away as a community? Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Man, and that for me, that's what it is. And for me, Stephen Boyd has become a very good friend of mine. Nicholas Lott, my wife, all of these people. Justin, Justin has become a great friend of mine, man. Uh, we see each other regularly here, but we also now interact so much more because of this stupid, stupid show we do. Um, sorry to call what you're doing stupid. <laughs> uh, but man, the, the friendships, the value of people that I have is so much better, man. Mm-hmm. Larry, we've got to wrap up. We turn into pumpkins at a certain time. As we get wrapped up, what else? Is there anything else you want to share about Larry Hack or your journey that would help others? I, I get a lot of joy um, helping in any way that I can someone that's trying to, to learn this because there have been – I made a list when I went to Europe of, of all the people that had helped me. And I started this list, and it just kept going and going and going, and there are just so many people that had a role – and me being able to, to complete this dream. And um, I think all of us that gain some experience, there's a lot of joy in then sharing that with, with somebody else. I'm a no expert, but being able to share whatever I know that might help someone else is, uh, is something I think that's good for all of us to do. It's really rewarding. Guys and gals, if you've never met Larry Hack, the dude who looks like Iron Man, the dude who has the dopest helmet on the drop zone straight up your helmet is fucking gorgeous uh approach him he, you you are one of the most approachable people out there you are super friendly 
you were super eager to share anything and everything you have, man. And, and guys and gals, if you want to meet somebody who's interesting, hit up Larry. Mr. P, anything else we need to share, my friend? No, man, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, being willing to, to share some of Yeah, no, thanks for the invite. I, I am honored to, to get to come on the show. I appreciate it. We'll do it again. We wait a while before we do it again, but I hope you don't mind. I hope you're interested. We'll do it again. Sure. Mr. G, what you got? Yeah, Ditto, thank you. It was it was really great listening to you, and uh, especially, you know, getting through certain things and, you know, uh, replacing your thoughts and thinking positively. Uh, I, I, I get the same way, especially at work. I get super stressful. Mm-hmm. Lots of shit going on. It's like, look, it's just fucking work. Who gives a fuck? Like, mm-hmm. think about all the other good shit that's going on. Yeah. So, good uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Sure thing. Man, guys and gals, next week we are taking it off. It is Thanksgiving weekend or week. Although we are off, Mr. P and I will actually be hosting an LB Live. LB Live, we traditionally interview guests, but this next one is the Thanksgiving show. Mr. P and I, Nick and I, are going to be introducing a new series from LB Live, a new series from the Altimeter (laughs) Company. Definitely tune in live as we give what we're thankful for. We're going to talk about what we're thankful for. We're going to talk about what Thanksgiving is all about. When you see the ads for this next episode, LB Live. I just gave you a huge hint. And if you're a fan of Gravity Lab Radio, I'm giving you the biggest insight. You must watch this show live. Hey, don't give it away. Don't give it away now. (laughs) You must watch this episode live to be able to take full advantage of Thanksgiving. So if you ain't figured something out by now, Man, your visa, I mean, your vision must not be very clear about what Thanksgiving is. Is this getting anywhere with anybody? Guys and gals, tune in next week to LB Live. Gravity Lab Radio is taking off the week after. We don't have a show scheduled or planned yet, so I'm going to plan it right now. White Boy, hit that music while we talk about it. Uh, In two weeks from now, we're going to do a boys show. The boys is the three of us. We're going to do open question and answer. Nick, I think that went over real well last time. So that's our goal. That's what we're doing. It's the holiday special. We'll talk about Thanksgiving. We'll talk about Christmas. And we'll answer any questions you guys have. Till then, Grab Lab Radio, Blue Skies. Hopefully we'll see you in your land soon. And Larry Hack, thank you so much for being here, my friend.